Thanks for tuning in, guys. You're listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg Driver. I'm joined by Rahul Johnny and Leon Everett. Let's go! Good morning, afternoon, evening, and welcome to Ace Comicals episode 87, the second in our three-part series on all things Watchmen. Um, so we're discussing Watchmen-related media chronologically, and that means that today we are all about the 2009 movie and the 2012 comics of the before Watchmen, can you call it a series? Um, oh, it's more of like a collection, like I don't know, really, because there's like several series all lumped together. It's like the before Watchmen run, I guess, because there's like a lot of material there. It's like 30 odd comics um, all in all. But yeah, so that's what we're here to do today. And uh, as last time, we are joined by special guest streamer and lifetime member of the DITB Mafia, Anthony Askew. Hello. Yes. So um, I guess we should just get straight into it. So this is a film that like ever since the original graphic novel hit in some way, shape or form, they've been thinking about making or had been trying to make. Um, I think they originally like sort of like got onto wanting to make it in, uh, 1986 was when they first started like trying. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver, they had the film rights for it. Um, 20th Century Fox and Alan Moore wouldn't write a screenplay. <laughs> so they got Sam Hamm involved and he rewrote it, make the ending, making it more manageable. Um, and it basically got put in turnaround in 1991. From there, it got moved, moved to Warner Brothers where it was picked up by Terry Gillingham. Um, it was going to be directed by Charles McCone. Um, Oh, Charles McComb was going to, yeah, he was going to direct it and rewrite the script, looking at this. Um, and it didn't get the budget it needed. And they said it was unfilmable and they dropped it entirely. And then in 2001, they picked it back up again. And it was like Lloyd Levin and Universal Pictures. And they hired David Hayter to write and direct it. So Hayter left because he didn't like it at Universal, like creative differences. And then Gordon, wanted to set up something at another studio and it, it kept going and going around like this with different people attached. At one point you had Michael Bay um, and then Darren Aronofsky to direct haters script. <laughs> and it just went round and round and round and round until finally it got to, Oh, Tim Burton at one point wanted to direct it. And it was just, yeah, it just kept going and going like this where pe different people kept getting on board and rewriting the script and everything else until it, it came to uh, Snyder. Oof. Has it ever yeah. been a hotter potato in cinema? Like the, a project that nobody wants to touch? I think scared. I think you guys know more than me about movies. So I don't know. I don't know. Leon, do you know of anything that's been a hotter potato than this? Uh, I think similar to... <clears throat> Watchmen. Akira? Uh, yeah, Akira's been kicking around for a long time. Uh, a lot of directors and producers have been attached. Uh, Superman in between Superman 4 and Superman Returns. There'd been, uh, again, like Tim Burton, um, 
Kevin Smith, like a lot of people had um, yeah. had input, had been part of it and had written a, a, a draft at some point. I mean, yeah, I was going through the wiki of this like earlier and of this movie just to see like the production stuff because it's all detailed there. It's like, and the amount of names that have been attached to this is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> How much money has been wasted? Like bu- uh, budget aside for this film, like the amount of money that's been sunk into this a dying project that was, I don't want to say it was never alive because I'd be maybe a bit too harsh, but it's insane. Yeah. It was like it's... four different studios and directors and all like so many different screenwriters and stuff. It's yeah, it's poster child for development hell movies. Yeah, definitely. Absolute development hell, development ninth circle of hell, I reckon. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean that lands us sort of in the 2008, 2009 times, which is um, probably around then, maybe 2007 is when I, like, as I probably detailed in the previous, um, in the previous episode, it was like hype surrounding the idea of this film that got me on board to read the graphic novel because I got recommended it by people that were hyped for this movie. And um, it was around then that I was introduced to the world of Watchmen and things like that. So I was, I was like, and then when obviously when the trailer started dropping for this, I was like fully on the hype train for it. Now, before we get as far as discussing like trailers and, and pre-release hype and everything else that we may have had ourselves, like how um on a scale of one to ten, one being least, ten being most, how much do you think this movie should have been made? Like, let's just get that out there first of all. Like, what it does, like, because obviously we're going to all going to have biases as to whether or not we prefer the original book and whether we think this movie is, like, was even worth it in the end or whatever else. Like, so just get that out there straight away. Like, try and keep it like between a number between one and ten, and then we'll what see is, if this if changes. It should have happened or shouldn't have happened. If mean? it sh- if it should have happened. So oh, like, sh- right. yeah. ten saying it should have happened, one saying it absolutely should not have happened in any form, universe, reality, whatever. So. I'm going to go 10 because <laughs> yeah. I had so much fun seeing like seeing this in the cinema. I went yes. like twice within three days, I think. I, I, I yeah. really enjoyed it as a cinema experience. I was a lot younger then, and I've got to be honest, at the time, I really, really, really liked it. I even had a, a Watchman badge at this point. So I was like, you know, I was flying the flag. I liked Zack Snyder leading up to it. I, I loved On the Dead. And like, I was at that age where 300 was, you know, big muscular bearded men beating people up and you know violence and stuff so i was i was on his you know i was fi- fighting his fair fight i think i'd yeah. have to say the same thing maybe not a 10 i think like most things i would give a seven like i'm i'm a fan of seeing just how things unfold whether or not it should or shouldn't be made you know what i mean like i want to see it either succeed spectacularly or fail spectacularly either way i'm kind of happy seeing the attempt so like that's the reason i was um i was excited for the dark tower film even though i knew it was going to be crap um and that's another development hell film by the way but like yeah for that reason i was excited and i think this had a lot of promise i think like uh Askew was saying um seeing all the trailers and like just generally being a fan of the book and like being sort of a nerdy wanky literary type as well that's the reason i like the book so much and then seeing that they were going to make a film out of it from the same guy who directed 300 which had a really cool visual style i think yeah i i was i was up for this being being made yeah i mean i was like 
it, I, I, I was like, here's the book because they're making a film of it. So I was like reading the book. And then from there, I guess, because people around me were on board with this, I was on board with it as well. And I had tons of fun with it in the cinema. I really enjoyed it. I liked 300. Back then, I wasn't really paying attention to who was making what as much as you guys were, because you guys are more filmy than I am. So like when I'm watching movies, until I started like discussing things with you guys like we're doing now i never really had much of a knowledge or much of a um a kind of an awareness of this is that director's style and this is what this guy does and things like that so i didn't really get it but like and and i i already liked 300 but i didn't put the names together because i wasn't really looking at who was directing films yeah i was looking at what films were based on yeah I have thoughts so, on how appropriate his style is coming off yeah. of 300, but like the fact that it was a comic book movie that had been adapted, um, yeah. is, you know, is the thing. Like Leon, well, as as resident film nerd, what were your thoughts? Yeah, personally, like um, I feel like can like joke and stuff about, and I I probably said it on this podcast before. I've definitely said it in passing regarding certain projects when they get announced, and, or when I've seen a movie, and I'll say like. It shouldn't exist. Da, 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 da. But like generally, I'm one of those people where a bad or mediocre adaptation doesn't really affect the original for me. Yeah. And my only regrets uh, in those cases are if I think, oh, this is the only chance. So when there's things where it's been adapted and the, the adaptation was not good or uh, like sort of blew up and, and didn't have an impact that that hurts me to a degree because i'm like oh man now the general populace are going to be missing out on this cool thing so and, and a recent example of that semi-recent would be the ghost in the shell movie which mm. people who saw it uh i know people who quite enjoyed it da, 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 but that's beside the point it kind of like uh fizzled and and didn't didn't really um leave an impact on anything. And that, that, mm. uh, sucks to a degree because I'm a big stand for, uh, all things, uh, Ghost in the Shell. And it would have been nice if an, uh, a Western adaptation of it or even just a live action adaptation of it, um, had done enough to get people interested in the IP and bring people, uh, um, to it. I mean, part of one of the good things when that's not the case is that it means that you don't have to go with endless, uh, franchises and, and sequels, but, Overall, I would have said in the run-up to the movie, I would have been a 10, obviously. And then following the movie, I, I might have dropped down a bit, but not not too far. But mm. at this point, I would say I'm always interested to see an adaptation of something. And yeah. uh, even if it bombs, uh, there's always going to be something interesting in, in, in what happens with it. Yeah, And at I the think... very least, it gives you an excuse to be mad at the studios, like with the Doc Tower yeah. and me. <laughs> yeah. mm. I think in the run-up to this, I had like a probably like more of a hype for it so i would say like in the run-up i was probably near a 10 maybe eight or nine um having rewatched it recently i'm probably now around a six or a seven but i think that's because i'm when i'm watching it back now i'm not just looking at the movie i'm looking at everything that happens around it and like the massive, the massive tsunami, the original comic creative versus the lack of ripple, this movie made and the potential that the source material has 
that this movie didn't manage to tap into or realize. Because I think that, in my opinion, the way they made this film sort of missed the point a little bit of the source material. And they were making, they made a superhero movie, but Watchmen isn't necessarily a superhero story, Hmm. if that makes sense. And I think think that's the general consensus, right? That's, That's the opinion that most comic book fans have of this film. Yeah. And it's weird because some, in some aspects, the attention to detail for some of the smaller things is like too in depth that then <laughs> just leaves the, possibly the more important part of the story just to kind of flutter past in a second. And then there's mm. so much, in, so much in, in, intricacy, yet it's like quite heavy handed at times. So it's like, it's, there's no consistency. I think it's so up and down in that regard. And I think to expect to cover that 12 issue, great comic in a film it is is ludicrous it couldn't it couldn't be done it's, it, i don't think i mean it's not a bold about... statement but... <laughs> well your point about all the details is super on point i think because like it's production value in lieu of knowing what to do with the narrative mm. and like that that happens in spades in this film i think yeah and there's certain things that I appreciate way more now watching it than I did then. Like certain, de- like the lighting from Doctor Manhattan is all almost always on point. If he's in a room, the room's lit blue and like it's it's cast on someone's face, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think all of that is on point. Ninety nine percent of the time. Like to to branch off into like nerdy sort of behind the scenes stuff. That was like the actor literally wore an LED suit, right, which was diffusing light like literally into the scene none of that was done or most of that wasn't done post-production or anything they didn't add lighting sources in after the fact or anything that's really smart that's, yeah i think there's certain things like that and so, some of the set design i think is is good hmm. i mean like, uh, is... streets and stuff i think really captures what like the mood i, I got when i read the comic firstly so yeah hmm. i mean from a from a film fan sort of point of view i think this is one of those films where i loved looking at the behind the scenes just as much as the movie or perhaps even more so in some cases because like seeing how much attention to detail they put into what they thought what what you can clearly tell they thought was the one of the most important parts of getting this film adapted was getting all the little details right which isn't i don't think is necessarily the right way to do it but they obviously put a lot of love into that and like just the level of intensity of like replicating scenes from the you know from the comic and replicating all the settings and like the the Gunga Diner and all those kind of things is incredible like they they tore that comic apart and you know put it onto screen which oh is yeah impressive. a lot of it is shot for shot and that that's down to the fact that they used the comic as the storyboard hmm. so like yeah I mean it the same way Snyder did 300 really he used the comic as a storyboard yeah and he um he had Dave Gibbons as an advisor as well. So like Alan Moore wanted nothing to do with it. And Dave Gibbons went on to become an advisor for this movie. Um, I think Alan Moore even like at this point, he was like any kind of like any money from this should just go to Dave Gibbons. Like, I think he was like, he didn't want any, he, he didn't, he, he wanted so little to do with it. He didn't want to do, um, interviews and things. And, he was like saying like any profits from this, just give it to Dave Gibbons instead. Like that's how bitter he was about the fact that this eventually got made because it was the whole thing about him waiting for the rights to revert to him and Dave Gibbons because of the, 
the terrible contract that DC gave them in the first place. Um, and this is like, this isn't just something that Alan Moore would have suffered with. This is something that was, is, is a, well, I suppose still could be a very, a, a, is, is a very thing, is a thing in comics is, is the contracts that these creators work under where they, they create these intellectual properties. They create these stories, these characters and things like that. But then they, because of the contracts they sign and the way that they work for the companies like D, like DC and Marvel and such, these characters then become the property of the company and not them. So they lose the rights to their own creations. And mm. then the company just can do whatever they want with it. Like if they want to kill that character, they can kill that character. They can have another right to do it because it's their character, not yours. And I think the thing that's... Is, so when you're at that, like kind of, you've got that story, yeah. you're going to the big wigs. I feel people will accept a lot of iffy terms and because con- you don't know how big yeah. something's going to turn out or how beloved exactly. it's going to be. Well, they didn't expect it to do what it did. They expected it yeah. to go out of print and the rights to revert to them. But because obviously the thing whipped up such a storm when it was released, the book, the rights never did revert to Moore and Gibbons and it just stayed perpetually in print for however long until it's still in print now. You can still buy it. <laughs> um, they're still making, you know, money off it. And because it's still, it's just been repeatedly in print forever. It's, they've never ever got the rights back. And, and this is something that they were sort of tricked on. Yeah, uh, exactly. Like. And part of this is down to the way DC parent, like every so often, like they, like what, what you'll see is they had the original graphic novel that stayed in print for ages. And then in 2009, they made this film, which kind of like shoved it back under your nose. So then everyone's out buying the book again to see where this film came from. And that's like going back to what you, what your initial uh, question to us was. Yeah. Uh, A reason why I've arrived at that point where it's like, I don't mind any type of adaptation is that in the, in the run up and in the discussion of a thing coming out and even in on the release of the thing, it exposes people to the original thing. And I think even Zack Snyder has said in interviews that, he wanted the movie to be an advert for the book as well. Yeah, which I, I respect that massively because I want people to go and buy the comics. But like, it's um, it. I think it's what I'm getting at with that is not necessarily that it's selling comics because that's what we want it to do. But what what it is is the the fact that it's um. I guess it's not, it's, it's not what this, it's not what Watchmen was designed to be. It's not how Watchmen was designed to exist. It was meant to be a one and done one story, never expanded upon, never, you know, it, it was meant to be like, cause it was the, it was like the watershed moment for comics. It was what, it was the birth of the graphic novel and everything else, but it was meant to be a single contained one and done. And I think the fact that this continued popularity and everything else kind of misses the the point and the philosophy of the original text and the point that Alan Moore was trying to make with this story and, and what Alan Moore and, and it completely throws out what the original characters wanted, the original characters, the original creators wanted this to be when they conceived it and wrote it and created it. Um, See, I'm a lot less fire to all of that. I'm a lot less precious these days for certain things like that. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm way more kind of uh what's the word I'm looking for? Like accepting of this film 
than yeah. I am those before Watchmen comics. They feel like a, a bigger uh, disservice to the source than what this does. Because this oh, yeah, tried, yeah. Yeah. whereas those comics, they were, I hate to say it, but they are fan fiction, obviously, because it's essentially, they, I'd imagine they're fans of the source. Yeah, it's fanfic, so fanficy that the dialogue—it just doesn't feel like any of the real characters are saying those yeah. lines. Well, I mean, I would like, say, the service. I would yeah. say, like, we should put this, frame this in a, in a context. So, like, uh, we were talking earlier about how what was our like one out of ten um, in regarding of this thing existing. But once we knew it existed and we got trailers and stuff, what were what were the people's feelings uh, then in the run up? Like, because you, you you feel like they shouldn't be making this film, but then at the time, I was thinking, yeah, okay, I'm I'm excited for this because the trailers, the trailers sold it to me. But I mean, and the we... trailers, in a way, are the reason that you read the book. Yeah. So you got you're going to have a different experience than say yeah others yeah. yeah. You're right, yeah, because my, my whole thing was I, I, I read the book because people were hyped for this movie. So that's what, I mean, this is like me coming into it because this movie got made. But in retrospect, the way I'm looking at it is I'm looking at it from the point of I can see why Alan Moore's so annoyed about it. Yeah, yeah. but Alan Moore was going to be annoyed by anything. That Absolutely, yeah. From, it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to take his word for whether something's going to be good He's or not. He's a stubborn fella. Yeah. Like, yeah. doesn't say he's wrong, but doesn't mean to say... He's definitely right. Also, I yeah. think that's more of a discussion for when we're actually talking about like the nitty gritty details of the film and what's mm-hmm. changed and what works. But yeah. it, for where we are in terms of leading into it, I think that the, yeah. this will be divorced from that, especially if um, you hadn't read it before going in. Because mm. yeah. for me, I can't remember if it, the first teaser trailer had come out before or with The Dark Knight. But it was around the same time, and I remember. Obviously, I knew the movie was coming, hmm. and I'd seen Three Hundred, and I and uh, I knew that they had hired Snyder, and I'd liked the movies that he'd done up to that point, and I thought he's one of the few Hollywood directors who could still shoot action. So I was like, okay, even though, like, that's not what expecting. Because I I remember reading that uh, one of the reasons that Terry Gilliam left the project is that he got to a point where he was like. This should be like a six episode HBO show, not a movie, because there's just too much here. It, you can't fit this into a two hour in, into a two hour movie. And I would have loved to see that version at that point in time. I was one of I was part of that team, whatever team. I guess Team <laughs> HBO. That that's the team I was. I would have preferred that to a movie, and I was saying that. And then the teaser trailer came out, and. For the me who was me back then, it was before we were at this point that we are now, where now it's not enough for me to put a cool thing that I've seen on screen and for me to get excited about it. But back then, where it's before all this MCU stuff and uh, we'd had um, Sin City in, in 05, I believe. And that for me was like a, a, a perfect translation it wasn't even adaptation. Uh, Rodriguez translated that from the book. And again, in the same way that Snyder did, he used the pages as a storyboard and even brought on Miller as like a co-director. So when the trailer for this hit, um, that first teaser, sorry, the one that had um, 
the uh, Smashing Pumpkins track, the beginning uh, is the end is the beginning. Oh my god! That gosh. was hype because one of the first things you see is um, yeah. all the yellow text, and then Archie smashes out of the the Hudson and uh, starts flying up, and it's exactly like the panel. And at, for me back then, and I think this was in the run up to Dark Knight. I don't think Dark Knight had come out yet, but like for me, it was I was like. My, my brain exploded and I thought, okay, maybe this could work. Like maybe this mm. could work. And that first teaser trailer, I've watched that a million times. I've discussed it with Askew and everyone a million times. It was just so hype in the lead up, in lead up to that. And obviously Dark Knight did come out and that's still my favorite comic book movie. That, that trailer has been the subject of many a lit discussion. At yeah. The and <laughs> like. Uh, I, I've watched that like so many times and the, the one, there's elements in there. There's not too much action scenes in that first teaser trailer. It's a lot of, um, Zack Snyder's slow-mo. So mm. when I watched that trailer, I was like, oh, this is cool. And like, it, it feels because it's uh, a photocopy of the book, just live action in HD. It looked, it looked cool. And, and like, that's why the hype level was, was maximum. And I said, ah, oh, uh, WB have just, just nailed the Dark Knight. I can't wait till next year. I'm hoping they nail uh, Watchmen. And the second trailer hits, and the second trailer is the one that has all the action scenes in there. And that, for me, I had like a, a weird up and down experience because the up part of that experience is that they use Muse take a bow, but they they start the trailer with um, like the Philip Glass uh, score of one of my favorite movies mm. of all time, uh, yeah. Quiet and And they play not just Pruitt Ego, which is my favorite track on there, but Prophecies as well. And they do a mix, which includes both of them. And then it goes into the Muse Take a Bow. And I thought, whoa, this, this is really cool music. But at the same time, then I'm getting loads of like slow-mo action uh, martial arts and stuff. And I was like, I started to get worried. For some reason, I have Muse Knights of Sidonia in my head. That's way earlier than that. I th- well, actually, I don't want to say that in case. It's yeah, like it's not. It's not that song's great, but it's, it's not that song. It's definitely take a bow. 100%. Oh, for some reason, I'm thinking. I, I was thinking. I'm sure I've seen a, a, something with Watchmen with Knights of Sidonia attached to it, and I don't know why. AMV. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe it's an AMV, yeah. With that first trailer or the first teaser or whatever it was, um, like the thing that you said, Leon, like where they they get the. Um, the carbon copy of the book translated to celluloid really, really well. And then your mind gets to fill in all the gaps of all the action happening in between these like yeah. slow-mo vignettes. And that's why, yeah, like you have that dissonance when the second trailer comes out. It's like all the stuff that you built up in your head where it was like this really moody, atmospheric um, like translation to screen. And then it replaces it with just generic or semi-generic action sequence where it's that whole, it's like... Um, Silk Spectre dropping through the ceiling and like a hair whipping about and all that kind of stuff, which is not hero landings and all that. Yeah, yeah, which doesn't that that's the stuff that doesn't ring right because like yeah, moody in the wrong way. Whereas before it was giving you that moody staring out of the screen sort of thing because it's just Uh, slow motion of people looking like the characters in places that look like the comic and doing things that they wouldn't quite be doing as far as you could tell from the book. Yeah, and like the thing with that that first teaser. It, the only difference is the color palette and you're fully prepared for a, a color palette because it's 2008 and we all want gritty stuff from our comic book movies because <laughs> we've just had Fantastic Four and other trash and we, we want gritty. So if 300, me, which is basically red and sepia. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's more, it's that kind of, it's a lot of browns um, and yeah. oranges. But like, you want you want your Watchmen book, but you don't want those weird, weird purples, even though you love the purples in the book. In your movie version, you want everyone to be wearing leather and blah. So like, it, it was almost perfectly engineered for that moment in time. Imagine, like, right? Imagine this got made instead of Batman 1989. Imagine we got a Watchmen film back then instead of that. It would have looked cool. Yeah. <laughs> In a different time. But I want to mention mention the action scenes. I mean, say there's six in the film. There's only one good one, which is uh, Rorschach when he gets attacked by the like the police, when he goes back to Moloch's um, apartment and the police show up. That, oh, to me, yeah. I think that's a really, really good scene when he like breaks out of the apartment. And he's got the, and there's some good slow-mo there. Yeah. I used to be the a big slow-mo guy. Like the stu- yeah, yeah the, the aerosol, all that stuff. I think that really does a good job of capturing that moment in the comic for me. Whereas all the others, I can't think of much else except maybe I the can. comedian riots and stuff. The like prison, that. the prison riot. So, I like, hate, I hate j- just to to right, so, are, are we uh, leaving pre-release and jumping into the movie now? I think uh, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you just, like, just, just cannonballed off the top of the balcony into the pool. No, let, let's right. let's go for it. I just I just yeah. wanted I wanted to know what I could talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're done with pre-release. We we not, knew not that the trailer was hype, just thematically. But yeah, yeah, let's go. We, we saw trailers. We were all hype as hell. Let's just let's we're just in our early twenties. What, what yeah. do you expect? I'm being burnt by that point. There was nothing like we were young and I've been burnt ready, for it. ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been burnt by by. Michael Bay's Transformers by then but yeah that's another story for another time but yeah um, so I mean I went to the cinema to see this and I actually remember like doing this like with a couple of mates we went to the cinema to watch it and then we came out of the cinema and then we sat in a bar with the graphic novel on the table to have a dissection of it thinking we were some kind of like scholars or something like (laughs) that's pretty snooty from you who only yeah. picked up the comic because they're making the movie. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I look back at myself with disgust. I'm like, God, even back then when you'd barely been through the gate, you were trying to be a gatekeeper. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like turning around in the middle of the gate and saying, no, sorry. Yeah. Like, 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 like there's a queue of people trying to get through the gate. And then I turn around and shut the gate on the rest of them. I just like, this and now it's mine. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sitting there around a table with these people with the, the graphic novel in the middle of the table. And I'm sure we're doing a discussion of it. And then I went to see it another time with another group of people. And I'm sure I went to the cinema about three times. I, I would love to be a fly on that wall seeing young you and that squad just caught and shit about that comic. I'd love to Nerds. See, so oh. I, my, my story for this was it came out around, I think, maybe a little bit before my birthday in 2009. And so I, I bought me and my all of my friends tickets to see this film because I was super excited for it. And I know at least... You were rich by the sounds of it. Jeez. I mean, that's what we did for our birthdays is we did stuff for each other. We, you know, That's we, nice. Yeah, it was it was nice. It was cool back then. And um, so me and uh, me and one of my friends, we were super into this. Like he was the one who got me into the comic book to begin with. And, um, you know, we were both getting hype over the trailer and stuff. And I remember like me and him came out feeling quite excited about this. And the rest of my friends hated it. And I still haven't quite figured out why, because I feel like 
looking back on it, it should have been the other way around. I feel like I should have came out of it feeling a bit more deflated, but like I was just riding high on how like how stylish it was, I think. And I've come to and that's like how I am with all of these things, right? I come out feeling really energized by what I've just seen and then can pick it apart after the fact. Um, the thing like you were talking about action scenes, Askew, and like the one the thing i wanted to point out about that is right from the get-go like right from the start of this film it sort of betrays its hand really quickly because it does um so like you see the fight between the comedian and you know whoever Nothing he's fighting sorry how can i forget that one good one and it was a rorschach apartment but it, there's two there's that one. But yes, between that... the comedian and adrian Veidt. yeah and it's it's an amazing opening to that movie and it's like it's one of those things that i put on as um you know how they say when you buy a new stereo what's the first album you play on it and you know loads of people say dark side of the moon and that kind of stuff when i get a new tv or a new sound system i play this scene because it's got oh. like amazing audio it's got recall like it's a good way to test like how um the black levels of your tv are working and stuff and so i love this opening scene but it like it goes on for just a minute too long like you can tell Right off the bat, Vite comes in and he's like super strong and comedians holding his own against him. And then suddenly he's getting overpowered. And then there's a point where like comedian gets back up and punches through a wall. And that's the moment where it's like, oh, shit, this is not this is not showing the same realism as the book. And it's the same mm. thing with the um, the fight in uh, Moloch's place that you mentioned with Rorschach where he it's this really inventive really stylish like slow-mo thing where he's he's panicking grabs all the stuff out of the cupboard sets up his escape from this this room and then he does all that stuff sets people on fire dives out the window and that's when it should have ended and that's kind of where the fight ended in the book where he falls out of the window and gets captured by the cops but then he goes on for another 30 seconds doing all this kung fu bullshit yeah. and like it this film does that over and over again where it feels like it needs to add more and that adding more if anything takes away from it i'm going to say something controversial hmm. i don't think there's one single good action sequence in this movie <laughs> and you have to let me explain so, like, there's a lot of cool-looking shots and cool choreography, but action usually is meant to serve, like, a narrative purpose in a film. And you can tell, like, the the difference between, like, good narrative action and bad narrative action just by talking about two Matrix movies. So in the first Matrix movie, every action scene furthers the plot or furthers character development. In The Matrix Reloaded, uh, the action scenes are, like, the technology is 10 times what they were doing in, in the in the first Matrix, but every action scene just slows down the movie. They pause the, the narrative or character development so that we can see some cool action for five minutes and then the story continues again. And I would say that the, the curse of this movie is that all the action is framed well and shot well and technically looks great. And that's one thing that no matter what my current... Um, admiration for Zack Snyder is, whether it wavers or, or falters, and back then it was stronger than what it is now. I, I've always respected him as an action director in Hollywood because he was giving us wide-angle framed action, like in 300, while everyone else was giving us this horrible, choppy, quick-cut action that took over Hollywood. And all the sh- all the action sequences are shot really well, and the cor- you can feel the hits and everything. They don't cut away at the wrong moments. But all of it is just ridiculous, like, and it, it breaks the movie. And yeah. this is where, like, that first sequence tells you about the whole rest of the movie. Because, like, that sequence 
has re- some really cool moments, and it's like I remember loving that sequence. And it's still a cool sequence to watch, uh, divorced of, of like um, like context. But like you said, the punch through the wall, the head through the marble, like that's telling us at that point what this movie is. And every action scene after that, why do the crime busters have superpowers? Exactly. No. Like there's there's moments that betray each other like within the same second. So like the thing about him being punched through the marble, like there's a there's a really great moment where you see Vite overpowering comedian. Like the look on his face really sells like how oh shit a moment he's in. And, or like the bit where he um like he throws the the butcher's oh, knife and, he, and he, like stuff part. like that and like that's the stuff where Zack Snyder is amazing like the 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 framing of that shot the way the camera whips to it and like really sells catching the, the machete. Um, yeah catching the machete and like how that motion suddenly stops all of that stuff is great up until it then undercuts itself immediately after by doing something which isn't true to the character like you said it's not selling the narrative it sets up it pays off in completely the opposite direction and it does it I over and over and over again you're overlooking uh, maybe i'm trying to be nice to this scene more than i should but when he punches through the wall not the the pillar is but when he punches through the wall you cut to the inside of the bedroom and there's a photograph of um sally jupiter yeah yeah like, don't get wrong that is just a little tidbit that i'm trying to kind of pull some I totally agree what you're saying, Leon, like to further that narrative, but I guess maybe I'm just trying to be nice to that one. Well, that's me. like, I, I think originally I used to semi forgive that when that, um, that criticism came up, maybe in my mm. own mind to convince myself, um, that, oh, it's like a, a thinner wall, like probably like it might, maybe it's not, uh, the same brick or whatever. Yeah. But then like a, half a second later, he gets like a matrix kicked across the room and then the marble thing happens uh, and he's like picked up like with one arm and tossed. And it's like, <laughs> I thought the whole point is that there's one superhero and he's Dr. Manhattan. The Superman is real and he's American, but yeah, the this, other guys like, are costumed adventurers. Yeah. But they're like, everyone is kind of like the boys and they've been like juiced up on compound V or something like, why have they all got powers and can like uh, jump really high and do all this uh, crazy stuff? Like that makes for cool 2009 era action, but it, it just makes no this sense is, in, this in, is my point in this film about, at all. This is my point about them taking something that's not necessarily a superhero comic and turning it into a superhero movie. I feel like that's a, of its time though, I feel. Yeah. No, of course it is, but that's what we're discussing. So I think it had to do that. It it had to. I don't think it had to. I don't think it had to because there's, and... there's stuff that um because it becomes so sensational. Like in that same scene afterwards, where you have Rorschach like firing his thing up through uh, through the window and like it breaks through the the police barrier and stuff like that, and then he lands really deftly on the glass. Where it's like like with the the fight scene later on, where there's a coordination to him that shouldn't exist in his character, right? No. Like the fact that he's um like scrappy and uh inventive like that should be the thing you sell not the fact that he's cat-like and nimble because he was never really that in the book you know like it's like it doesn't understand what it wants its characters to be is like it's conflicted with wanting to make them look cool and superhero and that's like fine to your point about uh, Go ahead. i was just going to like say it as well because all the stuff you're saying it makes for great trailer footage. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's really cool when Rorschach like flies up to the thing and like lands on the glass. It looks awesome in the moment, but then it doesn't make sense with the the rest of the stream of narrative yeah. that you're getting. And, like we're in the think... first five minutes still here. I know, and uh, I think when I sat to dissect this film, 
like with my friends after watching it like when we sat in the table we were i think so so you got to remember that it was 2009 and we were trying to we were probably like because we were young and, and we were probably trying to seem a little bit more like smarter than we were when we were talking about it and whatever and we weren't really getting as deep as we're getting now at all but we were just talking like just just like base stuff like similarities like costumes and things and none of this stuff about them having superpowers in a story where these people don't necessarily have superpowers registered for me at that point and, and we were all on board with it a week before so yeah exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> well more than a week before ask you. i mean give but... me some credit but yeah at the same time, that's also fair enough because I came out yeah. of the, uh, the movie saying like, "Oh, they got the they got the smiley face, you know, perfect, and the blood yeah. dripping down the eye." And like, it was me, so like, oh cool. my god, even point, Mars like... had a smiley face, and 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 they did the thing with the this and they did that, and and you know, Doctor Manhattan was naked and all this stuff, and like, <laughs> but then like, yeah. when... and that's the thing, like I I have to like um like bring back up again how like I I was there as well. Like, I don't want it to sound like I was holier than thou back then. Like I was yeah. in the same boat. I left this movie and I was like, it wasn't perfect, but I, I liked what they did with it. And I, and I saw it twice in the cinema, I believe. And back then I was uh, more of a, an apologist for Snyder. And I would say that, that this is when he started to get some hate. Mm. And I'd be like, but he shot this. Duh, 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 duh. And I, I used to frame it as like, the film is a good companion to the book, but really mm. you probably shouldn't watch it alone. Yeah. And then it's in later, like more, it's in later years where it, it, it's more like the critiques have been like more gaping. But even back then, on my first viewing, while I wasn't in the boat of like this was cool, it was cool. I enjoyed this. Is what it's what I wanted. Like it could have done more, but I enjoyed this. I've always, 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 always hated that stupid alley fight scene where they're just killing the the knot tops. It makes yeah. no sense. Please, you brought yeah. that up because I used to, I used to defend that scene. And I remember, I'm arguing with you about. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I, I couldn't agree with you more now. I, I, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. What was your defense at the time? Um, well, I was young and I enjoyed the action. <laughs> but in a nutshell, like, yeah, I was enough. kind of just looking at it as from a like the enjoyment of a first viewing. Yeah. Whereas, plus, if if I remember correctly, it's similar to what you said. Uh, just now, were in regards to, I think you were looking at the the realities of it. Because it, it, uh, well, while I disagree to a, de- a degree, I do actually agree with you on the sense that uh, th- they had to do it, so they didn't have to do it. But, but if you want to get, yeah, yeah, if you want to get one hundred and fifty uh, million dollars uh, to make an R-rated uh, uh, comic book movie, you need to have some action in there. And if it's R-rated, you need to earn that R-rating. So I, I don't think they had to do it, but in terms of a business thing, I get what you mean. Like that, I, I get why decisions like that were made and why it's come out that way. And I think and I believe that's that was the the, the the crux of your argument. On that note, with the whole like um, violence and stuff, they still managed to miss the most poignant, um, I guess, violent-looking moment in the entire book, and it just yeah. gets stripped from the film, which is the bloody streets of uh, the yeah. city. Yeah, yeah, because they replace it with all this other. Mm. That that makes no sense. Like the one time where having that R rating would have been perfect. Yeah, yeah, and they go completely bloodless. It severely Mm. undercuts like the all of the lead up to it. 
And I'm fine with the Manhattan thing, which we'll get to, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no excuse for that not, not not to have the bloody streets. Exactly. Don't they take the birth of Rorschach though and gore that up slightly? Yeah, and, yeah they, they, they yeah. gore it up, but they do it in a way that because this is a, a, a criticism that I, I held while watching the movie as well. Only a few. I'm not. I'm like again, listeners. I'm not holier than thou. Uh, <laughs> but this is this is one thing where during the movie I, I hated it. Where I always thought it was this brilliantly like raw shacky and evil to make the guy force the guy to like um saw off his own arm to get out of the yeah. fire type thing it's like yeah. it feels so raw shack and in this way he just like cleaves him in the head it's like uh why yeah he's just hyper violent but it, it 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 doesn't have the same impact so as they, the they, other action would have yeah you see like they 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 like made that hyper violent and then they toned down the like the bloodshed at the end which was massive, as I mentioned last yeah. time, was my favorite moments of the yeah. book. Yeah, and um, all stages of this like horrific eventuality, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah, and they really because like that's one of my notes for the end of this film is like you have all of this build up. You have like even in because I watched the ultimate cut, which had all the director's cut footage plus the Black Freighter stuff, and the Black Freighter stuff is really um like interesting here because it adds a couple of tertiary characters to the story who in the comic like it's the the news vendor and the kid who's reading the comic um and like you get to you get to understand them you get to understand like how they have friction with each other how they come to like Mm. enjoy each other's company and then at the end of the comic like you they're the two people that you see get eviscerated first or that you know like one of the main set pieces one of the one of the main character pieces where you get to see them eviscerated by the you know the the squid bomb yeah because all the side characters end up on that one side street just as it happens exactly yeah and then in this one they because i don't know it just really undercuts it just it really undersells like the severity of what just happened yeah because it's so bloodless and because it's so clean and it's this blue ball of things which just splay the buildings out and then you get to see none of it. You don't see the aftermath. You don't see the, um, I don't know. You don't see the consequences. Yeah, crater at best, which is where, when yeah. Manhattan and Laurie shows up and it's pathetic. Mm. And, and what's no. wild, it's one of those things where it, it's almost a suffering of like, you know, like um, Roland Emmerich, uh, world destruction porn, where like yeah. you're watching sequences where literally in a frame, millions of people are dying in one go in those movies. And you're just like, whoa, that looks so cool. It looks so semi-realistic. There's no like fear. There's no like, there's no like loss of breath. Yeah. Like, oh my god, that's like monumentally tragic or whatever. Or just like, yeah. you don't feel that at all. And it's same with this, where more people die than die in the comic because it, it happens. Uh, it's all fifteen million world. people because it happens it? Yeah. all over the world. Yeah, and you just it, it has way less impact than the initial what, three million from the comic. Yeah, because one page no in the more. comic is more yeah. impactful. Like I said, like it, it left me breathless. Yeah. Whereas this, it's just ah, it bugs me. It bugs me. And it immediately cuts back to the Antarctic, which is like that's part of the problem. Is it doesn't linger anywhere, and yeah. there's no remnants of the people. It's just they've disappeared, and all the buildings have exploded. And I think I I could be wrong on this, but I remember uh, the conversation at the time was so many depictions of like world shattering events changed because of nine eleven. So like mm. for example, with uh, Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers, the way that um like Sauron's tower collapses had to be done in a specific way like it collapses from the bottom and then explodes outwards so it didn't look like the twin towers collapsing and obviously this is happening in New York and it's happening on a massive scale all of the buildings are being eviscerated so it does that thing where they blow 
outwards from the yeah. impact crater and then back inwards and then yeah. crumble. And like, I think there's some of these things which are part of it, but then it could have doubled down on the human factor instead of showing the building. Is that not whatever. more like, reason to go squid? Yeah. I think like, the squid thing one is more also... reason. Is that not one more reason to do the squid thing? I, I think that, um, regard, I think regardless of those factors, squid is mm. something that you can do once you've had a Guardians of the Galaxy and a full Ragnarok. But I just yeah. don't think that people already think it's silly enough that a blue man's walking around and an unexplained uh, Bubastis. I think the squid might have been. I don't. I think not even from a public perspective. I can't see an exec signing off on the squid. Yeah. <laughs> well, we said this earlier, Leon. We like. Well, I don't know what uh, Greg and Rahul like, but I like uh, the inclusion of Manhattan as being the the threat that everyone can like visualize. I, I, I like it, and it, it, I think that. Uh, it makes sense in the context of of doing the movie, uh, yeah. especially where they've modernised and they're talking about energy, which is a very uh, noughties and like, 21st century yeah. thing to it, go on about. It works for me. And like Leon said, it was topical. And I think they altered it to A, probably keep within budget constraints and whatever else, and B, to keep it topical. But also um, I think it that it's an, it's an easier thing to like i think if you do a tv if you do a tv series like if they had done the terry gilliam you could seed stuff where the squid comes and it doesn't doesn't feel uh as unexplained and ridiculous whereas i think having two and a half hours for the norm for the theatrical cut um them seeding the stuff to do with manhattan energy and then it happening all over the world it makes more sense in that reality that that would stop world war three mm. rather than just new york yeah. getting some friendly fire well, well the, so, the squid I, stuff sorry i was gonna say the squid stuff in the book is actually like if they were going to follow the book they could seed it because it is seeded in the book because they have those little scenes of all those artists and stuff working on that island yeah that's I think, I think this film seeds too much stuff that's not necessary already mm. yeah and i feel like any extra of that stuff would yeah, yeah, that, that's it's my point. Like, I think if they had a TV show that that connotates like you've got more running time and you can delve uh, on side stuff a bit more, mm-hmm. which would set up that that um, uh, and you could have more time to set up all the different uh, people disappearing and then them on the island. But I think mm-hmm. for a movie like like as you said, there's so many distracting things that are just there because they're cool in the comic book. That uh, I think that on top of that, I. I I think it's nice. I think it's 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 clean and efficient. The the Manhattan um, project. Just yeah. that uh, peers off. This is a, a like an really age old. Oh, sorry, okay, God, carry on, Ray. <laughs> I was going to say at the time in two thousand and nine, I agreed with all of these points a lot. I think it's really deft um, story writing. I think, and I think that's one of the things that David Hater actually introduced to the the script was tying in Manhattan as the the cause of this disaster and like using that as the catalyst for you know this this global communion or whatever. And I really, I really appreciated that. I thought that was really deft writing. Was but that David Hater's work then? I believe so, yeah. Um, He's still listed as main writer. So yeah, because I think somebody else did something else with his script. They took his script Galaxy. and did something with it. Yeah, that's it, yeah. And I think the in my most recent viewing, like the other day, uh, something that I didn't pick up on earlier was like, what that sacrifice is, is like you said, all of these seeding from... Uh, like how we get the scenes in the comic of all of the artists and all the scientists and stuff that 
uh, come together to create this thing that is out of the world and can be sold to you know all the gov- all the world governments to make them come together and what it what it removes is then um Adrian Veidt's sort of like really holier than thou shitty Elon Musk style exploiting the intellect of others <laughs> and like that, I, I that's something i really missed this time around it was like there were all these amazing artists who put their heart and soul into this project there were all these scientists and they you kind of get it in the film because you have like the scientists giving you know raising a glass to him at the end and he it, he's giving his little speech and it turns around and all the scientists are dead because he's poisoned them or whatever but like that's the only moment you get of seeing how it took it took a massive team of other people to make this happen and then he entirely discards them because he's the only one who's allowed to know the secret at the end yeah and I, I i don't know i feel like that was something that was that is sacrificed heavily by having this new plot structure of having manhattan be the cause of it yeah because yeah. another thing that you lose with that is that in the book the comedian finds out because of his his like work in, in in the movie you have an offhand line about him working for nixon and he came across it came across the plan whereas like he actually saw the island in the book what about the opening credits i know we've like barely scratched it but best bit of the movie best bit of the movie fantastic yeah, yeah. the montage is the best bit of the movie it's like world building it's fitting in a lot of stuff that you couldn't fit into the main story and they, it's it's um, Snyder at his best slow motion-y. <laughs> it <is. laughs> like it, I really it, it's like that so bit, good. actually, yeah. yeah. But I, I, there's something I do hate in it, though. What? Um, the thing I hate in it, I think I brought this up on the Watchmen episode, the, uh, the comic episode, is that in the book, when they talk about the comedian, there's a lot of stuff that we know the comedian probably did it, but it's all sort of um, in the background type thing like mm. it's not it's unconfirmed and it's like it's building up the myth of the comedian being uh nixon's number one hitman type thing <laughs> they retcon that in the comic and like <laughs> in the in the book there's a line at a dinner party and he says like um they're like laughing and joking and it's all these yeah. like uh connected elites and yeah. one of them asking something and then his retort to his like retort with a joke is just don't ask me where i was um uh, in relation to the grassy knoll type thing, yeah. um, and obviously he's hinting that oh, did I help kill Nick? Uh, did I help kill, uh, kill Kennedy? And in this, it's it's just explicit. Yes, he did. And yeah, then, but then, but then when you this... when you sorry, I'm gonna we're gonna come on to this, but when you read the before Watchmen comics, he didn't kill Kennedy. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it's still, they changed it again. They flip flopped on it, and, and and then like the comedian, uh, they have this. Uh, again, later, where in the book they say that, so we hear offhand that um, w- Watergate never happened because, uh, but what happened is that these two uh, Washington Post writers just turned up dead, Woodward and Bernstein. And then in the movie, he just says it offhand to uh, Night Owl when they're like right after yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, uh, uh, I haven't had this much fun since Woodward and Bernstein. It's like, what? <laughs> Why would you say that to Night Owl? Night Owl is not like a... a, a, a what are you? A He's not on your side. <laughs> yeah. He's just a superhero. Yeah. I have a funny anecdote about that, because I remember before the... Again, super hyped for the movie and was like, you know, reading up on stuff before the film came out. And I was talking to Christian about how I read a thing saying, oh, they make this really like clever, subtle allusion to the Kennedy assassination. Keep an eye out for it in the intro. And we watched it and it's like, 
No, wait, what? That's not subtle at all. That's just on the screen. That like the per like the person who wrote that article lied to me and ruined that sequence for me. I mean, not ruined it, but like, like why? Why even pretend that it's subtle? Yeah. yeah, it's so weird. It looks so it's, cool though. That the whole that whole thing is so cool. And it's that and shot is mega gory. Yeah, yeah. Like There's it's, too it's, many issues with the comedian um, or aspect of his story getting too much spoon fed with this. Like the the whole um, him being Laurie's father in the film. Oh, by the way, he's your father. Whereas that is so kind of not drawn out in the comic, but it's built upon and like kind of set up nicely. It happens in an instant. You don't get any guesswork or anything. And I I, I hated that bit actually, which I didn't hate at the time, but this time watching this. And also, it's taken away from Laurie because it, it, in, it yeah. in, the, in the comic, it's this big thing because she's trying to convince, she's trying to save the planet. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's the whole thing about thermodynamic miracles, uh, which is seeded earlier on. And yeah. what happens with this is just like, let me do this magic trick that I've got, which uh, can help us both look in your past <laughs> You can experience time how I do, but I can see it as well. Da, da, da. I'm just going to touch your head. And then it, that happens. And she's like, huh? Huh? And, and like, it's like she's about to say, uh, Eddie Blake was my dad. The community is my dad, but he like <laughs> interrupts, he, he Kanye's her. It's like, uh, I'm going to let you finish, but the comedian's your dad. <laughs> I don't take that moment why. away from her. He does, yeah. and he's. I don't like how surprised he sounds. Yeah, because I feel like he should be able to smell it on her DNA. Like I, I, I feel like there's that level of, like I'm not saying explain it like that, but yeah. Oh, I hate, I hate that moment this time around. She, when you say she, he should be able to smell it on her DNA, like her DNA should smell like cigars and cigars and whiskey. And whiskey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, but yeah, I think I, I, what I was, um, what I wanted to say is like the fact that this is a, a two and a half hour movie, and you've got twelve issues of comic. You think the fact that they've kind of sped things up and ju- kind of the way you're describing things, jumped things along, or put in certain MacGuffins that end up as plot devices to make things happen faster than they did in the books. Mm. It's because they're trying to cram it all into two and a half hours at the end of the day, which is like a, a story as old as time as far as adapting things to film goes. Like when you're adapting a, a a comic series into a movie or you're adapting a novel into a movie where you've got like a thousand page novel and you try and turn that into a two hour film. You're going to lose stuff. Like it's, yes, yeah, stuff gets lost, but yeah. I mean, look at The Godfather. Prime yeah. example that it's possible. Mm. I've never read the book, admittedly, but maybe book fans are like, "Oh, this film sucks." Well, yeah, this this, this leads from something else, doesn't it? Because what we have with this movie, uh, for all our different uh, and changing enjoyment levels, is a movie that looks a hell of a lot like Watchmen, but with a different color palette. Mm. Um, but does not have. It's like cosplay. Like it, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't have the spirit of, of the book at all. Instead, it has cool, it, 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 it has the same look of coolness that some douchebag nerd in a forum would be when they were recommending New Watchmen instead of just recommending New Watchmen. Like it's all the stuff that's not meant to be cool that is like presented as cool. And, mm-hmm. and then you add in all these slow motion action sequences. Uh, and these like well lit uh, recreations, and it's like 
this is where a this is where like a solid understanding of the source material comes in handy because that tells you what you can leave out of a movie and what you can what you can add that's different to a movie. Yeah. And obviously there's evidence of that here with how the endings changed and stuff like that. But then there's no evidence of that here in terms of how some of the other stuff plays out. And I, I've, I've always like said this, uh, there's, there's, there's certain elements where like certain lines um, are read, especially if they're coming from the comedian or if they come from Rorschach. And it's like uh, that reads, even though I think the Rorschach's misunderstood in, in this movie, it still sounds like he's saying the line. Like it still, it still, it doesn't read like, oh, that, 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 uh, that line was cool on the page. So I'm going to keep it in the movie. They actually still read that way. And I think that's because the actors are doing a lot of heavy lifting, but then there's certain lines that's like, you only said that because it's on the comic, but in this situation and how things have subtly changed in the adaptation from comic to movie, you saying this with well, like, is it, is this take one? Did you not do a take two? Like, why have you said it like that? Like, why have you emphasised these words and not the words that are emphasised in the book? And not to say, like, oh, you can't change the book, but, like, that scene had a meaning in the book, and it's not that you, you've done it and made it so it has a different meaning, which in that in some cases that's true, but in, some, in a lot of the cases you've removed the meaning from what's been said, and you're just saying it because it reads badass. And that, and I know, it feels so hollow. And there's so many instances mm. of that throughout the movie. Is it, I think Night not... Owl's a big culprit of that. Yeah, he is. Uh, I like, yeah. And I like him. Uh, I think Patrick Wilson is spot on. Yeah, same. And he does some good moments. Speaking of, something that's new to the film, Night Owl seeing Rorschach get killed, that needs to stay. I think that's what yeah, my favorite His reaction is. is pretty cool with that. Yeah. 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 Running back in and... Going for bite. Yeah, because obviously in the comic, he goes off and sleeps with Laurie again, which, mm. as I said when we did the comic, I don't particularly like yeah. that scene, and no. I think it's unnecessary. So, Do you think that this movie polishes things and puts a sheen on things and glorifies things about the characters that in the original story we were never meant to be glorified because we're not really supposed to like these people, are we? Original question, Greg. Like yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> like we were like we were alluding to before, like um, yeah. like Rorschach being this cool, cool Batman XP, um, in the same way that like I don't know, they're all sort of Batman in a way, but like Rorschach particularly being the the you know the gruff voiced monologuing uh, Batman type it shouldn't be that. Like he was he was gross, off putting. Um, found it hard to communicate with his teammates, found it hard to, like, connect to people. Like, that kind of stuff is pretty undersold. Like, he's the guy who eats beans from the tin, and you get one moment of that, um, and then you get a moment where, like, they pull his... The, the cops pull his mask off, and they say he stinks. Like, there's, there's only a few of these things where, where like, Rorschach in particular is, is sold as being, a, like, a creep with surprisingly good morals who... There's, like, his morals are set up from the wrong... Uh, in like inflection point and i don't know i feel like they they sell his cool way too much and it shouldn't be that way around yeah, yeah. i think that's possibly the biggest crime of the film yeah yeah, yeah. agreed but, i think yeah they 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 make even like even to an extent i think they make 
like parts of the film where the comedian is way like comes across way cooler than he should be. Oh, I think they make him, if not possibly worse than in the comic. They do, they do make him worse, but then there's points where you look at him and it's like, he doesn't look as. I mean, he can't help a... looking cool, but <laughs> it's his actions that speak louder than his looks, I guess. Yeah, but he's not, he's not, I don't know, like when you look at him, it just has a different look to how he looks in the comics. Like when yeah, you look it... at him in the comics, he looks like an asshole. That's the thing, like, what you're saying is true in that I think that this is a curse of of casting uh, Jeffrey Morgan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's a curse of that because it's not just that he's, like, an attractive guy or whatever and, like, a cool guy, but it, it's... Um, there, there's stuff where you need a bit more of that, um, like... Because he's an, an, a maximum nihilist and... But when he says all his nihilist lines in the movie, and, and like I said, I think he says them, he says his lines better than most. Mm-hmm. The way they're framed, lit, and shot, it's even though it's this horrible dude, that it's framed and lit and shot that like, and even how he's presented in the trailer, it's still kind of like cool lines. Like when he says a line, it's still like a cool line, and it doesn't, it, it lacks the the pain and the sort of uh, nihilism and, and uh, soullessness that mm. that read in the books. Yeah. Uh, so what you do, instead of having this pathetic, uh, violent figure who is good at working a room and is like the class clown, the, the literal comedian, you have this dude who's just like, hey, man, he's not that bad. He just, he just tells it straight. He just tells it straight. We all like a straight talker, like... Uh, like, do, do you yeah. want to get a beer of this guy? Yeah, hell yeah. But do, do you want to, do you want to actually hang out with him? Probably not. He's going to cause some trouble, but he, he seems cool. He'll get the job done. Sometimes you just need a guy who'll get the job done. He's, re- he's willing to get his hands dirty. So we don't have to get our hands dirty. And it's sort of sold that way. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that that is, uh, uh-huh. charitably. Uh, but I think like it's, uh, willfully. Yeah. Do you think that's because you don't, when he's, like, for example, when he's with the Minutemen, that scene where they're getting the pictures... Uh, no, sorry, no, sorry. The one where uh, Adrian's there and he, he sets the map on fire. Yeah. You don't see, like, any of the characters' reactions to him being a dick. You only mm. see, like, Adrian's. I don't know whether... You maybe, see... Um, uh... Night Owl says something, like, oh, we shouldn't. We should learn not to drink for these meetings or yeah, something. Yeah, and you see Laurie, in a, in a previous sequence where she's just about to find out who's her dad, she's actually smiling at him like yeah she's like yeah. cool well because afterwards oh, you were pretty cool in there she says it's something yeah. like that yeah because he is at that uh, well that scene he, he obviously people don't know what he's been up to at that was at that point but... yeah i mean i guess people. like to the to the to the young woman who's impressed by like the guy giving shit to the nerd in the room then yeah fair <laughs> yeah. enough right <laughs> Uh, what about the casting? Is there anybody you think is just off? Because I've got one in particular who I think's off. Laurie. No, nah, less. I think Adrian. I don't particularly like Adrian. I think oh, really? He's young. Uh, I would have liked like a Mads Mikkelsen. I agree someone, with someone okay. a little bit more, a little bit older looking. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree with you both, uh, <laughs> Rahul and Asu, because like I think that. Uh, Marlon uh, Ackerman, I just think that the characterization of her character as well as how she's directed 
just a mega awkward. It's and- yeah, it's not entirely on the actor. Like no. some of that is like maybe she was directed, like you said, directed wrong because some of her lines come out really awkward. Like so many of her lines don't just don't ring true. Did and- they involve Night Owl as well? Because <laughs> he's so a culprit. Yeah, like, the, the, I think I, I think it's, it's a different problem. So yeah. I'd say that with with Ackerman. Um, she, I think she's actually, she's cast for, in, in, she does her best in the sequences that, uh, Snyder loves the most, and that's the action mm. sequences. She yeah, because she looks the part. Yeah, the, she's, yeah. she's, yeah, yeah, exactly. She's good at uh, dropping those poses, and she looks mm. quite cool with that. Um, but I think that in, in the sequences where there's like some drama to be done, like, like you're saying, Rahul, she, it just, there's so many lines that just feel, off and it's like mm. it's not a, a diss of the actress because I've seen her in other stuff and she, I think she's a good like comedic actress as well and mm. I think comedy is quite hard but like um yeah she just she just feels miscast and misdirected mm. in in the movie mm. and well, yeah, I also the, there's no, moments where, yeah there's moments where that misdirection it, it's more obvious like it's not on it's not on Ackerman because it's like a line where um someone refers to her as as not Silk Spectre what's her hero name Jupiter. Yeah, Jupiter. Jupiter, And and she responds with, I've got a real name, you should use it. And like, I don't think, like her delivery seems off, but I swear that's because it doesn't make sense in the script. Like her character doesn't feel like she would have said it in that way, but someone's told the actor to say it that way. And like, Mm. that's where, that's where I have trouble figuring out whether it's the actor's fault or anybody else's fault. But like, And I like this thing. It's already kind of a tough role because I think Laurie is one of the worst treated in the book as, a, yeah. as like as a character. I don't think she's a fully formed character in the book, and uh, she gets uh, way less to do and characterization than the rest of rest of the uh, the characters. Mm-hmm. But like it, it, on top of that, it, it is compounded that she's just given these bonkers <laughs> line reads that this uh, are truly false. And like you're saying, ask you like. I was for one time a Matthew Good apologist for this movie because I, I think thought he's a good actor. Oh, no, of course, but I mean, like specifically for this movie, yeah, yeah. Because everyone at the time on the forums I used to go to would call up him as like the big weak point, and I, for what this movie's trying to do, I think he's well cast because this movie is reframing it because the book's written in the eighties, so it has no nostalgia for the eighties. But th- this movie mm. comes out near the end of the noughties, so there's nostalgia for the 80s, and then we can see that in the soundtrack and the look and the change of his costume from, like, an Egyptian god to, like, um, a-, a mocking of, like, the commercialization of superhero stuff, which is why he's got bat nipples and stuff. <laughs> but, but like, uh, and, and those, like, glow-on masks. But, like, I think it works for that particular thing he's going for, but then... That's all the stuff at the beginning, like the interview with Leibowitz there and stuff, and I guess the conversations with Lee Iacocca and stuff. But like, it doesn't work as well when he's actually in the story properly and then with the showdown. It just, he just, he just seems super, super lacking. And like, I, I, I think that a later decision that was done with that character in the world, I'm not going to say exactly what it is, it just feels like a way more on target pick than what they did for him and like I think mm. what you said like a, a Mickelson uh, I think that would have been like a very interesting pick uh, and I agree that um, somebody with a bit more gravitas because he's more like the he fits the calculating dude 
Yeah, yeah like the, the 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 guy who's doing the sciencey stuff and the guy who's like manipulating people, but he doesn't fit the guy who like gave away his imposing. fortune. Yeah, gave away his mm. fortune to be like uh, Alexander the Great and just mm. walked off into the wilderness uh, to steal people's cultures and make himself a badass. Like he doesn't <laughs> have that vibe. No, mm. I agree. Didn't they? In, didn't they um, intentionally cast younger people because? I think was it Zack Snyder said something like, um, it's easier to age people up. Oh, is it? it? Is to... Has he seen yeah. this film? That's the worst looking old makeup I've seen. I'm sure it's 100%. something like that. Yeah. Am I right? I, mean, I get the logic and it's perhaps am I, am I mean, I right? 11 years old, different time, like better technology and better makeup now, I, I suppose. But some of it with uh, what's her name? Uh, Laurie's mother. Nixon. Nixon's. Prosthetic. Nixon is the worst <laughs> yeah. in the movie. His nose. That nose is incredible. But have you ever seen Nixon? <laughs> also, yeah, that bad, Nixon, that Nixon, Nixon terrible. impersonation as well. Yeah. It's a Futurama oh, yeah. Nixon. Here it is, actually. I found <laughs> it. Yeah. So this is actually, Snyder said he wanted younger actors because of the many flashback scenes, and it was easier to age actors with makeup than cast two actors in the same role. Yeah, but like, as you said, like the Silk Spectre stuff is really yeah. bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because also that that actually fits more with the the Minutemen stuff than it yeah. does with the mm. Crime Busters, who for some reason are called the Watchmen in this, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. <laughs> but like, um, like it makes sense with like if you're going to cast in like Jeffrey Morgan and like Carlo Gugino, um, but like Laurie looks exactly the same. They just change her hair. Manhattan yeah. doesn't age, obviously. Um, uh, uh, Adrian, age. Yeah, Adrian, yeah, Adrian doesn't age, and Night Owl doesn't really as well. They just change how his like face yeah. is under the mask. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. This is this is it. Like he didn't really do a job of aging them up any in any in any way, even though he said he wanted to. It's like, but yeah, no. Um, uh, there's just, there's someone else actually that I've got issue with. Yeah. And this is one I struggle with because in some ways I think it's really cool and in some ways I just think it doesn't work. And this is Manhattan. Really? Yeah, like, so I'll start with why I think it works. I think having Manhattan be this like soft-spoken guy works in the sense that he's not human and he doesn't really understand us. Um, and he's, he's, he's like trying his best to have a connection with a human because, but that's, humans are the only thing he doesn't really understand. Like I think that that element of it works for me, but then there's parts of it where I'm like, why why is Billy Crook just speaking so so softly for this scene? I've like, not seen him in anything else, so I don't have. Maybe I take. I mean, no, the thing is, it, it's how he acts normally, right? Um, but like, I think that doesn't ring true for Manhattan in some bits where, like, I think him. Like, it, it kind of makes no sense that he's built himself back together as, like, this Adonis. And then um, he comes back and he still sounds like this sort of, like, science nerd. I, I think that it makes more sense if he did have a bit more of a, a more gravitas voice. Mm. And it, it works better with some of the dialogue uh, sequences. Um, I yeah. See, when I read the books, I always imagined him to be very monotone hmm. and very just matter of fact with like a deeper voice. Like I not think... necessarily gravitas, just just like a computer stating facts kind of thing. Like, 
I'm headcanon with him as Manha- I think his voice. Yeah. I, with him being so soft spoken, the scene where he's getting interviewed and he kind of like snaps, you see that moment where he kind of breaks and becomes human again. It kind of catches you off guard while he's shouting and stuff. I mean, it's not like a big booming voice, but he's shouting. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fine with him, I think. I get what I you're saying, but I've always mm. had his head, in, his voice in my head now. I don't think I can unhear him as Manhattan. I like that soft, uh, like the soft voice, because it undercuts what you think, you know, you'd get from an omnipotent being. Yeah. You should speak telepathically, really. <laughs> I mean, to, to that, the point you just made, Askew, like that's, that's where it really gets sold, because like he suddenly bursts out with emotion, where he's been quite emotionless and bland the entire way through. And then where it really works is the sequence on Mars, where he's, you know, doing his monologue with that amazing soundtrack in the background. Yeah, I think that's a good scene as well, obviously. Mm. So, can we move on to the amount of tat that came out with this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Because this is something that I was looking at. Um, And uh, I was just looking, I just thought like, because I, I, I remembered around the time this movie came out that there was like a, bunch of merchandising that came with it and like just a bunch of complete tat strangest thing that this this collection of tat included was a toaster <laughs> and <laughs> yeah there was um a watchman tie-in toaster and it's um th- there was a rorschach toaster that made a rorschach uh, blot on your toast as well but yeah like i mean what why on earth like a watchman label on the side why like what's the what's the deal there with the toaster well i once went to alan moore's house and he's got that <laughs> it's the one thing he liked about the production yep. <laughs> <laughs> he loves toast. He's, he's british and you know yeah puts his puts some marmite on it in the shape of a raw shout blot <laughs> wait so what other tat was there because in my head i thought you were going to go towards like um the motion comics which came out which were interesting but not actually that good oh um, there was ultimately mate, yeah. there was toasters there was lunch boxes there was journals there was messenger bags there was clocks i mean watches that's, magnets that's not... wall scrolls <laughs> Rorschach I, mean, wall scrolls, I totally get wall scrolls but the other stuff seems so the Watchmen playing cards in a tin. But that's like, you've you got to fill Forbidden Planet with something, right? Like, that's, really? that's what that stuff is. Oh, this is, this is in the pre... Yeah, there was a Watchmen hip flask. This See, is I mean, like that in makes the... a lot more sense than... Yeah. Not even the... To- I mean, the toaster's for adults, but the, like a bait box. Who's going to have a, a Watchmen lunchbox going to school? <laughs> I know. This is clue. <laughs> Dr. Manhattan lunchbox of all things as well. Unless it's like an irony thing, like, uh, yeah. oh, it's like we're making this comic book film, let's pretend we're making it for kids. I don't know. No, I, I don't I don't think so. I, I think I, I think it's a genuine like DC trying to sell tat to fans type thing. Mm. Yeah, it's par for the course for these Hollywood films, right? Because yeah. then the thing that I wanted to ask you guys was, did you, at the time, did you watch anything like the... Um, the motion comics or the tales of the black freighter stuff because that while not while i wouldn't call it tat i think the black freighter stuff isn't 
isn't great. And that's part of the ultimate cut that I watched recently, mm-hmm. where it's three yeah, and a half yeah. hours and it includes that, you know, that content. But, but, but like, weirdly, is that the Black Freighter stuff was made with the intention, like, the ultimate cut was always going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was made to do that. So they shot certain sequences so they could lead into it. But like when you, even knowing that Snyder was uh, making the movie so that on one cut he could uh, go into those sequences, mm-hmm. it always feels so, in the ultimate cut, it just, it doesn't feel natural at all. It just it feels, feels like really... stapled sequences. Yeah, it's, it's super jarring. Yeah, I just want to add, like, with, with the tat as well, um, there was a Night Owl coffee brand, sorry, I forgot to mention. So there was Night Owl dark roast coffee which was removed and discontinued. It was taken from shelves after a lawsuit filed against it from OCC, which I assume is another coffee company. See, I think that's reasonable to release. I think there's something uh, yeah. very very fitting, more so than a bloody lunchbox. But well, I've never I seen mean, Black Raider. You can, you can wake up in the morning, you can have your night owl coffee with your Rorschach toast. And your Rorschach beans. Yeah, your tin of beans, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then you can, human then, you can then you can go to work with your lunchbox. You, you, you watchman lunchbox. <laughs> that's a line that shouldn't. That sounds bad. The human bean juice line. Oh yeah, that's one yeah. that, as Leon says, might think it sounds good, but it doesn't. You see, I didn't. I didn't watch the uh, the because you guys, a couple of you guys, watched the supercut, didn't you? With like everything in it. Yeah, yeah, that's what we were just saying. Because uh, yeah. like the the point I wanted to follow on from Leon was. Um, we were saying how even though it was designed to have the Black Freighter stuff intercut into the movie, it still feels really jarring. And like um, the, the the scene in the alleyway that we were talking about, which the scene in the alleyway already in this cut that I watched at least interrupts a really interesting moment where Manhattan's on the, you know, on that interview show and um, he's being Q&A about Wally Weaver and Jamie Slater. And that dumb alley fight distracts from that already. And then he says, leave me alone. And everyone in the studio disappears. It cuts to the alleyway again. They have some pointless dialogue and then it cuts to the black freighter stuff. So it's like you've been, you've been double interrupted before you get that amazing scene on Mars. And like, it just, it, it just doesn't make sense. I don't, I, if it was planned that way from the beginning, they planned it wrong. Like, I don't know. I don't know what, I, I don't. I just I don't understand I, it. That sounds disgusting. Like that. Oh, that person is off as is on the because it's it, it's the same thing, but without the black freighter stuff on the the cut that I seen, and it's hard mm. going. See, in my oh. head, I I I I remember the film being "Leave Me Alone," and then he disappears to Mars, and you see mm. him pop into Mars. Am I just making up my own edit in my head? Is that not how it happened in the theatrical cut you just watched? No, I think I mean it. It it ends with that in the same way, but it, you're right. What you say it cuts back and forth to uh, Night Owl and Laurie, yeah. killing dudes, and then goes oh. back to Mars. Yeah, that's and the it, worst. It on, you got that bit where they're on their way to Hollis's house, haven't you? For a yeah. beer night with Hollis Mason. Oh, to think I used to justify or like kind of like that scene is, is is madness. Well, it happened in the comic. <laughs> Did, Wait, sorry. Does it? The scene yeah. in Hollis's house where he's being attacked. You don't. You don't no, like no, the bit, the bit no, no, before no, no. that where they where um, Silk Spectre and Night Owl are on their way to Hollis's house, and then they get set upon by top knots in the right. in the alley. Yeah, with all the the bones sticking out of arms and like knees going backwards yeah. and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I sure that like happens that. in the comic, but it might be I mean, a little bit less violent. Do because that. that's how they do that whole. Oh, yeah. remember being a superhero thing. It's actually quite fun. Yeah. 
But yeah. it's also that thing of like the sexual tension between them and they're, yeah. they're going out and fighting and it's like this energetic thing they're doing. And that I'm pretty sure that's in the comic, but it's certainly not like hyper violent and five <laughs> minutes long like like this is. No. <laughs> like they just they just like snapped people's necks, broke kneecaps, like bones yeah, coming out like, of elbows and shit. And then they're turned on. Like it doesn't it doesn't ring right. There's a point where Silk Silk Spectre full on busts a guy's neck and, and puts a, a knife in someone's throat <laughs> or something. And then like later on in the film, Rorschach uh, Night Owl is telling Rorschach that, you know, like not to kill someone, I think, at some point. The dude in the the bar where in the comic yeah. you overhear somebody talking about Hollis, but obviously you don't get that in the, in this cut, which leads to an awful cut actually because I think yeah. that was so intended to be there. You see Night Owl in the background facing away from Rorschach, where you would then cut to the scene of him overhearing, and it just doesn't do that. So it's like it feels yeah. so awful little bits like that that are, maybe I'm being too harsh because you would yeah. overlook something like that maybe. And maybe I'm doing being a little too critical, but later on he tells Rorschach he's too hardcore, but he's just been there with Silk Spectre in the alley while she's been literally killing people. Well, I, I think the, <laughs> right? the, the, I think the point of the bit in the bar is that he says not in front of the civilians, whereas with the not top bite, this is in, I'm just I'm not arguing yeah. for that because I've already like an hour ago said how much you love that scene. We get it, but, but like um, I think it, the internal consistency is that with the not tops. Uh, no one's there apart from them, but they're still super cavalier with just murdering dudes, which yeah, makes no yeah. sense. Yeah, I think um, I think you guys overall get a better read of this film than I do because you're you guys are more movie inclined than I am. I think, which um, I think overall you guys get a better read of it, and you guys can sort of like dissect it a little bit more. Uh, thoroughly than i can whereas all i can do is watch it and compare it to the book and be like well that's the same that's not i'm i'm not as cinematographically minded as you guys are but yeah well, well, from a enough. comic point of view what do you think about the change of the antarctic base design because i hate it Maybe i'm not into it. it yeah i mean i i think i think there's things that they've changed and i don't understand why they've changed them mm. and that's one of them and i don't understand so like rorschach in the prison where it's like in you know the bit where he's uh there's a riot going on and they've got the 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 bolt cutters or whatever yeah. to open his cell and there's a bit where he, the guy sticks his hands through the bars and in the comic it's your hands my perspective yeah which is a cool line and in the in the film they change it to your hands my pleasure for for yeah. some unknown reason like this like you were saying they, they want they it to be gritty and violent like Rorschach's getting getting a boner out of cutting this guy's arms off or something then, I don't know like but, but then why preserve the lines from the comic in places where it doesn't make sense as Leon was saying earlier like <laughs> it, there's so many strange decisions in this film yeah, and to I the know. thing of like inspecting movies differently than you the thing that I didn't say up front was like I hadn't seen this movie for like 3 4 years properly and um, I was fully expecting to have like a different perspective, a different read on how I, you know, how I take in this this story, fully expecting to like come out of it with loads of criticisms. And this this is me picking up on criticisms for something that I actually really enjoy because I came out of the film um, like re like finished watching the movie the other day and had a really good time with it. Like I was surprised at how much I was entertained by this film. And there's a lot of things mm. to love, but then it's so easy because it's that that's the dissonance between loving the book and loving the narrative of the book and what the what the narrative of, of the book is trying to express and then being entertained and like just being how joyful this film is in its 
what it presents and like i'm trying really hard to or i guess i've gotten better at letting yeah. go of holding on to the book stuff because yeah. i don't know uh, it, the reason i'm so nitpicky about it now is because i wanted it to do better because there's so much potential here and i i don't know I, I still I still really enjoy this film. I would recommend it to anyone, but mm. it's it's so lacking in some really core places. To close out the discussion on the movie and to move this along so that I can briefly get into the uh, the comics to like skip us forward to 2012 because the comics came off the back of this film because I think the popularity of this movie uh launched Watchmen back into um back into the public consciousness and the consciousness of comics fans and things like that, which gave DC the sort of excuse to do the, these comics 25 years after the original comics, they got other teams of um, creators to go back and revisit these characters and create some kind of prequel material for them, which is what the 2012 um, before Watchmen comics were, which is what we're going to get onto in a moment. But um, just to close this out, so do you think the differences between the movie and the original graphic novel, do you think these harm the idea of Watchmen or the story in any way? Do you think if you had just seen the film without reading the book, do you think you would have an entirely different point of view from it? As in, do you think it harms the narrative? The, the well, I don't know about Holmes' the narrative, but do you think it takes the narrative from the book and skews it so much that it makes it something entirely different? And do you think the idea of taking something as important and as self-contained um, as Watchmen and turning it into something mass-produced is missing the original vision of the creator? Uh, I would say... <laughs> so, like... I'm happy that this thing exists. Mm. Um, and like Rahul was saying... On this watch, I had a more pleasant time of it than I did the first time I watched the um, the Ultimate Cut. Because the first time I watched yeah. the Ultimate Cut, it, it really hurt. Whereas yeah. <laughs> this time, it wasn't as bad. Um, and I'm happy it exists because it, it's brought it to more people and more people have uh, come to yeah. the comic because of it. Yeah. But I would say one of the things that really hurts it is that uh, I think Zack Snyder's interpretation of this movie has made it almost the canon for a lot of people. And I think people have, I mean, comic book um, fans have always been misreading people like Rorschach. But I think the movie amplified that to a degree. But then you have this awkward uh, scenario that we have now where it, it, it was fine on 300 because. You had a, a writer who made a, 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 quite a, f- a fascist-style uh, story and then directed by someone in quite a fascisty, objectivist way. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then you could ignore that because you could, oh, action, action, action. And then, so you had that. Um, and then you have now... A, so it becomes a bit more of a like a layer cake. But like you had a writer who was uh, doing satire of an objectivist writer's characters mm. uh, and then is adapted by someone who, who, who made his characters, who were a satire of objectivist characters, into objectivist characters again. So it, it's like he's undone uh, Moore's work in some way because now it's back to uh, 
we're the watchmen. Uh, let 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 uh, let the the smart and powerful people uh, do what they need to unchecked and solve all of this. And you can argue that no, 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 but like he's the bad guy. Da 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 da. But like for all the, I think they like really hand wave all the um all the right wing and uh like moralistic, uh sexist and homophobic stuff with Rorschach. Uh, especially mm. for when it came out in 09, I think they sort of hand wave that stuff and it's just like, oh, it's, it's gritty textures to this character. But or I you're think supposed that... to applaud the fact that he's calling out the, the bullshit of like all the whores and politicians. Yeah, and blah, blah, blah. In, in the yeah. same way that people like love Travis Bickle, who he's obviously based on as well. Mm. Um, but like Travis Bickle's not meant to be a hero. And when he, his bit at the end, you can view it through a her- heroic uh, lens, but really it's not. And you kind of get the same thing with here, because obviously it, it finishes in the same way of the book, where it's like, I leave it up to you. But mm. uh, then the music goes into, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but the song is kind of like, a, don't worry, guys, the truth is going to come out. And re- the book more leaves you with a thing of like, uh, is, is the truth is going to come out, but, but what's it going to mean? Um, yeah. And then this, it's like, don't worry, guys. Rorschach, Hell yeah. Yeah, Rorschach sorted it. Like, he might, it's he like might be they, dead. they're confusing the two because they're taking, like, a punk song. Yeah. Like, it's Desolation mm. Row, isn't it? Desolation Row. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, it's, yeah, the, yeah. it's the My Chemical Romance cover of Desolation Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, like, they, they do that. And I think that changes the complete tone of the ending. It does. Uh, and fits in line with how they've misread Rorschach the whole movie. Because yeah. now it makes this thing of, like, Instead of having this disgusting, awful person, he's just this person who's sacrificed to to he's clean a up the streets. Yeah, and he he died. He died. Don't worry, he didn't die die in vain. People, yeah. the truth will come out. He's a well, he's I... a martyr for and and he's like he's been glorified for people when he shouldn't have been because it's it's actually. I mean, it's like you said before. It's easy to misread Rorschach in the book anyway, but it's like that movie it doesn't even make it a misreading. It just feeds you what it, the facet of Rorschach, it, what, it just feeds you the Rorschach it wants you to believe in kind of thing. It's like... Where did that mistake come from though? Do you reckon it's like in the writing or do you reckon the like production side was like the audience need a character to kind of like or to kind of pin as the, the main character to a point? I, I think know. it's a lost in translation thing because yeah. I think this is the problem with, with satire that people often say is that sometimes with satire, uh, like with all things, you want to treat the audience like they're mega smart. But I think one of the problems we've had in the last like three decades, is, or maybe longer, <laughs> is that sat- satire sometimes is so good that uh, the audience doesn't actually pick up the joke and instead they take the thing at like um, face value. And then I, I think that you're going to have a lot of people who are reading Watchmen in the 80s, 90s and noughties and stuff. And they're reading through the lens of the, these badass heroes who are getting their hands dirty to do blah, blah. And this big lie cover up that happened. Mm. Da, 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 da. And like conspiracies and cover ups are often painted that way of like you've got to un, uh, unravel it. Da, 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 da. And yeah. the book is about complicating those things. But then if you read it that way. Then one of those readers might someday end up be uh, a big rush director for Warner Brothers, and this is the case we have because, like, <laughs> some of the the big strengths of Watchmen are the fact that uh, Snyder is the nerd who made it, but then a lot of the big 
like negatives of the movie is because Snyder is the nerd who made it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it's not, you don't get like, there's no, the way this film ends as well. Like you have no idea what sort of publication the new frontiersman is. Well, it's hinted that, but like I said, it's like hand waving. So we see the thing where it's like, blah, blah, something right. And then someone sprayed wing. Yeah. And 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 it's not, yeah. Sorry. And then you see that same poster in the window of the new frontiersman. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. But I mean, like it's, it's like the, the, it's not there on your first viewing when you're already bedazzled and awestruck by the special effects and the fight scenes and everything else sitting in the cinema, like it would be when you read the book, you know, Mm. but there's going to be a lot of people who see the film who don't read the book, never read the book, never will read the book. And then they get that as their message from the film. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Which is the point. Yeah. No, but that happens. (laughs) It happens. It happens. And then they go and watch the TV series and then they feel ashamed of themselves. (laughs) Hey, hey, careful. (laughs) <laughs> I've not finished it. Yeah. Well, we're going to come on to that. That's going to be part three of this uh, this Watchmen series. But what we're going to do now is we're going to move on from the movie and we're going to get into the 2012 prequel comics. We kind of came off the back of this movie because this the, this movie coming out and hitting the cinemas and then people kind of like getting back on to back into into Watchmen as a as a story and people going out and buying the comic and things like that DC thought it'd be a good time to go back and revisit these characters and to pay the way they put it is like pay uh, pay homage pay respect or whatever to the original text and to do these tributes in the form of like four or six issue miniseries dedicated to each character each main character in the Watchmen's story to try and give us a little bit more color of the about the characters and to try and give us um, a little bit more, maybe um, an idea of what these characters are about and everything else. And, and largely it's as we're going to come on to, it's things we don't need. Right. Ask you. Oh, a hundred percent. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh... because I, the whole point of Watchmen is like, I keep saying it's a one and done. It's 12 issues. It's self-contained. It's start, middle, end. And that's all you're supposed to need. And that's all you really do need. The whole point of us doing this this series, really, of this stuff is like, yes, there are other bits of Watchmen media to enjoy out there. And maybe some of it's really good. But the point is, like, the enduring thing that's birthed all of this is this single graphic novel from the 80s that is actually really the only thing you need to enjoy um, or, or to enjoy these characters. Now, before Watchmen... Um, so each of us kind of like went through this in varying degrees. I read the whole lot, like the whole thing, um, (laughs) which (laughs) amounts to something like, um, well, let's see. There are like 35 or something like that. Yeah. I'm about to tell you the full number because I'm about too many individual issues. Yeah. So. Sorry, Rahul, what was that again? It was 37. 37. Total of 37 issues, yeah. So you've got Before Watchmen Minutemen, which is six issues long. Before Watchmen Silk Spectre, which is four issues. The Comedian one, six issues. Night Owl's four issues. Ozymandias is six issues. Uh, Rorschach is four issues. Doc Manhattan is four issues. Moloch is two issues. They did a two-issue Moloch series. And uh, is it Moloch or Moloch? Because in the movie they say Moloch. I've always thought of it as Moloch. What do you guys think? I say Moloch because it rhymes with bollock. Yeah. 
That's not my reason for it. <laughs> I don't say I don't say Moloch. It sounded like you said Bollock. But... The reason the reason I say Moloch and not Moloch is because Moloch sounds like Moloch the Glucken from Abe's Odyssey, and <laughs> Moloch also like when you when you look at his full stage name from when he was a like a, a magician, Moloch the Magnificent doesn't sound as good as Moloch the Magnificent, does it? So I assume I going on. Like the tradition of stage names and, you know, Moloch the Mystic and all that kind of stuff. Like these, these like, um, old school, uh, magicians, stage magicians and shit. I think it's Moloch, but that's me. Um, and, uh, you get, there was a dollar bill one shot and there was also an unpublished Watchmen ep- before Watchmen epilogue, which never made it to print. And, um, I'm not sure why, but it didn't. Um, it was cancelled, but it doesn't say why. Well, uh, I wonder how, like, kind of like the time frame of when they were being released, because chances are they were seeing how well these were doing and being like, mm, maybe we'll just save our last couple of pennies on this last one. Well, I mean, these got collected into a into an omnibus. You can you showed me the omnibus actually I on did, Amazon. I, did. I from... nearly bought that version. <laughs> but you're glad you didn't. More, I wish I'd bought a physical copy so I could have put it in the bin. it's unfortunate that it's now sat on a server with my digital signature available to it anytime anywhere yeah you can't talk the server across the room no i can't i can't snap my tablet into because i'll instantly regret that that's the problem i've got right now (laughs) but no yeah i i i read all of it and some of it's okay some of it's really bad and you know, some of it's just falls completely flat and just completely misses the point. So the amount of talent that DC threw at this is absolutely ridiculous. You've got names like Michael, uh, J. Michael Straczynski, Brian Azzarello, Darwin Cook, Len Wein, Lieber Mayo, uh, Adam Hughes, Andy Kubert, Joe Kubert, Amanda Connor. And it's just like, they just basically just like threw an all-star team of creators at it. And we're just like, you know, do you reckon they chose to be on this project or it was like DC like, right, we need to gather some people in an office. Whoever's here, you're all doing one of these, whether you like it or not, because I feel like uh, these people shouldn't have stepped up to the mark. I'm sorry. I guess it's a payout at the end of the day, but like, if you were asked to yeah. do this, you'd be like, mm, I don't think we should. I mean, I'm just basing that on what I've read, so... I guess mm. a job's a job, though. And if you had the opportunity is, to work yeah. on an IP that you love, then some people would jump at that chance and hope that they could do it justice. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the rea- the reaction, the initial reaction on the announcement of these comics wasn't a good one. Like people were like, "Why? Why are you doing this? Like, what is the point?" Um, and obviously, Alan Moore wasn't pleased. But what's new? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to be saying that at least once an episode while we do these Watchmen episodes. Alan Moore wasn't pleased, but yeah. Um, poor Alan. Uh, so this is just um, another one of the things for him to just turn around and go, why? And um, I think there was like a, uh, somebody spoke to him um, on the phone uh, for I think it was the New York Times actually spoke to him and uh, I've got like a quote here in this New York Times article I'm looking at now. I tend to take this latest development as a kind of eager confirmation that they are still apparently dependent on the ideas that I had 25 years ago. 
<laughs> Savage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they they um they threw all this talent at it and created this uh these kind of like um prequels and things um another more quote was as far as i know he said there weren't that many prequels or sequels to moby dick so there we go um and i i feel like in doing this because i mean it's not it's this is nothing new in comics okay so it's not like this is something that's new it's not like this is something that you know comics fans shouldn't be used to by this point but it's something that's unique in the fact that they're doing it with watchmen in a thing that doesn't really leave much space for this to be done and probably you know something that 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 doesn't require or need it because it's not an ongoing narrative so it's i mean like for things like spider-man to to be passed down from creator to creator and for people to have a chance to make their own mark on a character like spider-man that's different because it's not like um spider-man was a fully formed thing and was only meant to run for so many issues it had no end it was the whole point of spider-man was it was an ongoing thing and it's not like watchman was designed as an ongoing uh an ongoing narrative It, it it had a definite end so it leaves less space for things like that and i think that's the difference and i think the way that watchman is made and, and the statement that watchman was supposed to make when it was originally released as a, a single graphic novel of 12 issues, 12 comics, uh, 12 chapters and the waves that it made and being at the forefront and the birth of the graphic novel. I think that this creating these prequel and sequel comics for it or all these prequel comics and, and this, although this kind of like side material for it, I think that kind of cheapens it slightly. And Even the source material or, well, cheap cheapens the whole the whole impact of Watchmen and the idea of Watchmen by burying it under more. So it, it, instead of it being this standout standalone unit, it becomes one thing in a sea of things, and it just becomes lost and in, it becomes like every other comic out there. I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing because, like I said, for, for you know, for things like Batman, Superman, whatever these these well established comic characters that have run for years. The strength of them is they run for years and people get to make their own mark on these characters. But I don't think Watchmen works that way. And I don't think it was ever designed to work that way. And I think that is my main problem with these sequel and prequel comics in the fact that they should not exist because they do not need to exist. Yeah. But you right. enjoyed it though. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> I enjoyed some of it because technically I can't fault some of the comics. Like some of the comics were were really well made and the amount of talent behind this, like it's hard not to enjoy some of it and and to actually look at these pages and be like, that's a cool page. But the point is overall, I don't think I needed it or necessarily craved it or, you know, it's not something that I'm, I can be totally on board with just for the idea, just because of what it is, you know? I'm I'm on the polar op- I'm in the polar opposite in that I think this is very easy to look at and say this is hot trash. I I, I want to give a line here that Rorschach says in the Rorschach uh, comic. Someone uh, I don't know says like criminally captures he, Rorschach says verbatim, "Bitch to be you." Right, <laughs> that's the you one that I picked up on. Never ever never say that. No, and I'm not saying that's one of the good ones. <laughs> No, I know. I'm just, I mean, there's multiple examples of certain lines that yeah. are said and the way it's delivered just aren't in 
yeah. the vocabulary of those characters. It's, it's yeah, ridiculous. that's amazing. Like, I hope there's like catchphrases. Like, oh don't God. have a cow, man. It is crazy. <laughs> like if you think that the um, the film misreads these characters, <laughs> some of these comics are bad. Oh yeah. oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, but I mean, like when these books came out, the the massive there was massive controversy that came with it because some shops refused to carry them. Oh, that's and brilliant. certain creators refused to take work from DC in a sort of show of solidarity with Alan Moore, I guess, because they were like, well, if this is how DC treats people, because, you know, this is, this is like kind of displaying the ridiculousness of some of the contracts that some writers and things are made to sign. And this is the final straw because they're doing this with Watchmen. And, you know, this is the if this thing. is how it's going to be, I'm not going to take work from DC anymore or whatever. This, this is the thing. Cause normally with that type of attitude, you'd roll your eyes a little bit because yeah. it's like, yeah. no word is sacred. Uh, and you, anything can be uh, adapted. If, if, if well, the rights holder has the right. That's the point, the, the whole point of comics is what I was getting at. Like comics are, are there to be adapted and to be built upon and whatever. But I think Watchmen stands alone in that it wasn't supposed to be that. Well, but, uh, no, I, I don't think it stands alone. I think there's a lot of uh, graphic novels that were written to just be one thing, work in one medium and never, ever be adapted ever. And if the people hold the rights, then yeah, that they they have the power to do that but i think the reason why i don't roll my eyes at uh comics people uh saying hell no we're not going to stop this is that in this particular case it's not just that oh it's the holy watchman but it's the case that there's a quite a storied history with how more was screwed with this yeah that's what mm. i'm saying i think i think this is like the straw that broke the camel's back basically and people going no no more dc and uh it uh, it is it like it's it's a point of historical record that Moore and Gibbons were screwed and we we know how badly they were screwed and it's not just them this is something that's happened to a lot of a lot of comics creators like the um the original creators of Superman were massively massively screwed and like we've only got to look at what happened to Jack Kirby you know as a prime example of the way the comics industry takes people and chews them up and spits them out. But there you go. Which was um, your favorite of these before Watchmen? Uh, yeah. So if I go through it now, basically um, I particularly really enjoyed the Minutemen stuff. So the before Watchmen Minutemen series, those six issues were really good. I really liked it because it had this almost Bruce Tim S cartooning and this reverence for the golden age comics while also continuing the trad in the tradition of Watchmen with the social commentary and an exploration of the times through the superhero and mass adventure lens. And I think what I like most about it is that it actually explored something that Watchmen hadn't already explored or given us. So it wasn't exploring the main characters in Watchmen. It was giving us something about the Minutemen, which had only been briefly mentioned in the Watchmen. You didn't get a lot of, you know, you didn't get a lot of stories about the Minutemen. I think you get Within... more than what you think because all those bits and those articles that are cut between like the chapters yeah. of the graphic novel. I think you get quite a fair chunk. Well, it's and like it's, it's not like... always a bad thing to feel hungry for a little bit more. Yeah. It's, you don't always need that full stomach, and this is what this these well, no, you... watching are trying to do. You don't, but I really liked this six issue miniseries, this Minutemen mm. one. I think this is the best one. And I think this is probably out of all of them. If I had to like burn the rest and keep one, this would be the one <laughs> that I'd keep. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Um, Cause it's the one that I read and I didn't really like it very much. Really? 
Yeah. Aww. And like, I, to add to what you said, um, I thought the art was kind of cool because it had that Bruce, uh, yeah, the Bruce Tim style, which yeah. was, is nice to see on page, but I don't think it really suited the story. And like, there was a real lack of action clarity. There's stuff like where people are leaping out and moving cars to save people and stuff. And it just doesn't, I don't know, some of the action just didn't ring yeah. true to me. And like, see- I also feel like it didn't really add much because like Aski was saying, um, you do get a lot of the Minutemen stuff in in the novel and mm. also the fact that it informs what's happening in the narrative you are seeing in the comic. And like you were saying, you don't always have to be full of that stuff. You can you can be hungry for more and see how it informs yeah. the story. Mm. I don't. I, I guess I wasn't necessarily in the mood for this. Also, yeah. there was like, there's a four panel scene of um, Eddie Blake menacingly chomping a pickled egg, which I didn't need. <laughs> I think I need to see that <laughs> first issue. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, th- I liked the fact that it did. It was like the golden. Age, it was like in the kind of like had reverence for the golden age comics, and it was continuing the tradition of Watchmen with this like you know everything. Like it, it was an exploration of the times through the mass adventure lens, and it basically gave more color to those Hollis Mason excerpts that we got in the original book. And I can't fault the Minutemen miniseries because I actually quite liked that. And this is the bit that, you know, it's, it had like, um, early pulp hero leanings and everything else. And it's something that I like what it would have been like for superheroes to have existed back then. I always liked these kind of stories where they, um, they they put superheroes into kind of like historical context kind of thing like um when you get the uh the Marvel marvels for example um where you have um the uh the first superheroes appearing in the 40s and 50s and they're actually in the 40s and 50s and things like that. Like, I really enjoy that kind of stuff because I, I like how they do it and how they, they put it in historical context and everything else. And I think that's what I enjoyed. Like, that's what I got out of this. Um, and I also actually quite like the Dr. Manhattan stuff as well. Uh, the Dr. Manhattan miniseries. I liked how they explored that character. Um, and they gave him this context as a quantum observer affecting the world around him and choosing and actually like, choosing not to make choices in order to preserve the world and the universe and the timeline. And it's like a winding comic that explores other universes where events may have happened differently. And it's got like this whole Schrodinger's cat narrative that runs all the way through it. And it's like got beautiful artwork, like this, this whole thing where, um, with like John ends up being the quantum observer in the Schrodinger's cat thing and ends up affecting the world around him in that way um, because of having his intrinsic field stripped from him and everything else. And like, we get this kind of like alternate timeline, like what if he actually managed to retrieve his coat and get out and didn't become Dr. Manhattan. And it turns out that, you know, bad things still would have happened or whatever. It's, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool idea. See, I tend to be more interesting than the comedian one, which is, Oh, he's in Vietnam. We already know he did that. Let's... Yeah, the comedian, the comedian Vietnam one was just like nasty for sake of nasty. Yeah, it's very it's like... slow going as well. Yeah. Mind you, some of the cover art is is pretty good. Yeah, in both, uh, Rorschach and the comedian ones, but I think, yeah, 
the Rorschach and the comedian ones, while there was some great art, they amounted to little or nothing for me. Like they were just pedestrian comments. They added nothing. They misinterpreted the character of Rorschach massively, as you've already mentioned. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. The actual um, overall narrative of the Rorschach ones, not too bad. There's essentially a killer on the loose. Yeah. And uh, Rorschach, it's, it's when he's, he's Walter Kovacs. He, he's interested in this girl or he's friendly with this girl. And, um, long story short, spoilers. He, it's, he, he's going to take her out to dinner. She shows up to where they're going to meet, but he's running late because he's dealing with crime stuff. And essentially because he ran late, the killer gets her. And it's, she, like, I was, yeah. it's like, it's like a bit, of, not a bit of sweet, but it's like a whoa moment at the end. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, yeah. that's not bad. That's not bad. But, that's it's outside, not bad, but it's not Rorschach. Exactly, it's... Uh... Yeah. Isn't that, but, is that the one that you had that panel of, Travis Bickle? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. They're, oh, God. They're in the taxi, and it's some of the worst... Like, Rorschach wouldn't get in a taxi for a start. But in what universe does he get into a taxi? Well, I mean, I don't know if you got the same reading of it I did, but that taxi drives the killer. No, no, the killer's somebody who goes to our restaurant. Oh, There's see, that, I figured the killer's... The taxi- uh, a regular at her restaurant who you see in some of the backgrounds, or at least I presume yeah. that's Oh, he's not the killer. He, but he has some really weird preachy line of, um, mm. about like, uh, people being bad. Oh, it's, it's, it's awful. It's it is. Re- yeah. I'd recommend yeah. people just read it <laughs> just so you can just see how bad that is. It's, it's not good. Bad. And the, the comedian one's not good either because it's just basically like a load of nothing. It's like the comedian was in Vietnam. Um, and Vietnam made him... the Kennedys and stuff that they built yeah. upon, like Kennedys, uh, which which got me reading about the Kennedys, and I learned some yeah. stuff that crazy stuff that and might be common knowledge to other people. But I was like, wow, the comedian killed Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah, there's all that. It's it's just uh... who didn't he kill? Yeah, true. It's just it's just like the comedian was a nasty man who went to Vietnam and came back nastier. The end. Like that's yeah. that's my it's just almost yeah. a poem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it. That that's what that comedian one was and it, it wasn't it wasn't my favorite as you as you can probably hear from the way mm. I'm talking about. I don't like the comedian. I don't want to like the comedian. Mm. You know, I, I he's he's like this is this is like this was my problem with the Snyder movie like like when he does that grin and he's chomping on that cigar and because the the actor they've hired to play the comedian unfortunately looks incredibly cool like I don't want to like the comedian stop making me like the comedian <laughs> he's a horrible horrible man you know he deserves to be punished for his crimes or whatever but <sighs> yeah um the Silk Spectre one, the Silk Spectre miniseries. Did anybody else have a look at this? Um, nah. Yeah, this was this was almost completely lacking an off tone. It didn't sit well with me, and as far as I'm concerned, this is the worst of the bunch. What? Um, it's almost as if it can't decide what it wants to be. Like we get some really beautiful art out of it. Like there's some beautiful psychedelic sequences detailing the effects of a new formula of acid. And there's a couple of cool alternative covers for it. There's a nice Bruce Tim cover and there's a really nice all red cover. It's just a shame about what's been up behind that cover because these like this Silk Spectre story is just like, it's like a coming of age tale where she runs away from home, like in rebellion against her mother um, while she's still in high school. 
and she joins some hippie commune somewhere. Um, and she's, you know, all about the kind of like beating it, like hippie lifestyle or whatever. Like, um, she's working in a cafe and she's, um, she's doing the whole kind of like hippie protest things and all that kind of stuff. And then she gets involved. It's like all about like all very of the times in the, like the, the kind of like the, the sixties, um, flower power and all that. And, uh, she's getting like, um, she gets involved in, um, something to do with a, uh, a bad batch of drugs or something, or someone hassling someone she knows, and she ends up be, like because she's already the silk specter by then because her mum's been training her, so she basically goes. This is like the first few times she goes out in costume and starts cracking heads basically to help people she she likes. Um, and then there's this bad batch of acid that's supposed to be making these hippie kids that are rebelling against society into good little consumers. Um, like the acid activates part of your brain that makes you want to buy stuff and be a, a, like, um, docile consumer instead of standing up and fighting for social justice and everything else. I don't know. It's really bad. Uh, yeah, this could be leading me down the garden path with this now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Say, this isn't directed at you, Greg, but what the fuck are you talking about? It's like still it back to comic. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's bad it shit. It sounds like, I mean, a, it's like a silly comic book story. <laughs> that's the point. That's exactly the point I'm getting at, and that's why I don't like it. Because it's how why? This is you know, why? I've but, heard it, that this Sil Spectre one ends spectacularly badly as well. Yeah. Like there's there is a really, about yeah. how it ties back into the original comic like it's yeah. it ends in a place that happens yeah. in the original comic. And then yeah. And reframes it, it and yeah. Oh god, and it's like all through her eyes, like how it ends in the original comic. It's like she's like looking at all the different characters that are in the room at that first crime busters meeting or whatever, and she's like, Oh, look at this guy, he's big and blue, and look at this guy, he dresses like an owl. And you know, like maybe this would really annoy my mom if I took home the big blue guy or something to that effect that she actually says. This is what um, I was looking up because I was looking up other people's yeah. opinions because I didn't get to read this, but the very final panel of that comic is a big full page spread of her looking at Dr. Manhattan saying, oh, he's so big and beautiful and blue. I wonder what it would be like to take him home. I bet that would really piss my mum off. And then the comic ends. And like yeah. the whole reason she's there is just to like annoy her mum and make some shitty comments about like sidelining like, this guy to bring home and annoy yeah. her parents. Like it's awful. There's some, there's some, like some of the acid sequences are really good when she's tripping. Like I, that's some good comic art, right? Like some of the really inventive things they do with that. But I'm, other than that, there's there's absolutely nothing of merit here. I'm I'm sure, like um, there's like um, there's a bit where the comedian does the thing of the dad scaring the boyfriend off as well. Like well, that can't have been in the comedian one. Is that in one no, of the that's others? in this. He made this in this one in the Silk Spectre one. Oh no! Like, right, okay. I thought you he meant turns up. He turns up on the west coast and like to try and get to try and get Laurie to come home because Hollis won't. And, um, like, um, Sally is like, then goes to, cause Hollis won't do it. Sally rings the comedian and gets the comedian to go and do it. And he does it in his way where he basically threatens to kill the guy if he doesn't enlist and go to Nam and write a letter to Laurie saying he doesn't love her anymore or something. And it's like, <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> it's just plain awful. 
So yeah, don't read that one. Just go look at the pretty Bruce Tim cover and the really nice all red cover, which is absolutely beautiful because it's Mike Allred. It's just a shame, a crying shame that it's for that comic. I'm sorry. I don't think it's a shame. I think these people deserve this uh, negativity. Sorry to be that guy, but even no, I mean, strip the Watchmen aspects of it, I don't think there's anything remotely no, interesting in the storytelling yeah. that would warrant these as like a exactly. short story in any shape yeah. or form. Yeah, Sub-par. I mean, it's a shame that Mike Alred made a cover for this comic. It really is. Um, and the Ozymandias portion, which was, you know, like, while it was beautiful with some really interesting page layouts with uses of like circular panels and things like that, it was a fun ride. Uh, it was written as if it was narrated by Vite himself. Um, and it gives sort of like a, lo- a blow by blow of him, like his parents dying, him quitting his fortune and going and traveling around the world. Um, and, um, you know, basically the Adrian Vite origin story, uh, and, and, and then it goes, it, it basically goes into how he orchestrated the whole plan behind Watchmen, but through his eyes. So we're seeing things from his angle instead. Which um, we already know his angle because we've exactly. read Exactly. <laughs> yes. It's, it's retreading ground that did not need to be trod. Even though it's a, even though it's a pretty book, it's a ultimately like, it doesn't give you anything. There's nothing there. I mean, like the artwork's absolutely stunning. It's just a shame that that it got made because <laughs> it's just like the story itself isn't it, it, it i don't think it adds much to anything or give you any kind illuminate it doesn't illuminate anything it doesn't add to anything it just it's just you know yeah don't get anything out of it and then like the other thing that i the, the other the only other bit that i really enjoyed because the two bits that i really enjoyed were um the darwin cook um Minutemen stuff, and then this bit, which is the Crimson Corsair, which was a tribute to or a riff on the Tales of the Black Freighter stuff, which was the in-universe comic books in the Watchmen universe because they read pirate comics instead of superhero comics because superheroes are real. Who wants to fantasize about them anymore? Um, I actually thought this bit was was pretty great. It was originally published as two pages at a time at the back of each issue of the miniseries, but you can actually buy it all collected. Um, and it is like wonderful art and it's a great homage to sort of like classic black and white horror comics. It's like in this classic black and white horror style. Um, it's like moody horror comics. Um, but this doesn't actually do full black and white. There are, there is like pops of subdued color throughout. And it's this like this pirate horror story, um, about the Crimson Corsair that's got absolutely nothing to do with any Watchmen characters whatsoever. Like, literally just a tie-in based on the whole pirate comic craze in the Watchmen comics. And um, it's actually really good. (laughs) So, well, it's all right. So yeah, there you go. I actually really enjoyed this one for something that was a backup story and was published two pages at a time at the back of each of these other comics. It's actually not bad. Um, So there's something positive there. Um, I mean, I didn't even mention the Night Owl stuff. It was bland, but I like the Batman comparisons and the riffs and subversions. So there you go. Uh, and again, like, it's just such a, like, I weep for some of the talent that was like involved in these books and what came out of it. The fact that it was nothing of any like value or merit or whatever. It was just a, a money-making exercise for DC at the end of the day. And yeah. like, you know, cause like, like, 
this is like the Cubits worked on. I think Joe Cubit worked on this, right? On this Night Out one. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll run through all the credits at the end, but that, I mean, damn. The Dollar Bill one was a one shot and that was kind of fun. Uh, much the same reasons I enjoyed Minutemen, Golden Age, done in like a real Golden Age Superman comic style. So that was really cool. Um, the Moloch one was like that Rousseau art where it's all kind of like grimy and edgy and whatever. And it was an interesting, sad story about Moloch. So Moloch, Moloch, however you want to say his name. Um, so that wasn't bad. I mean, it all served as good entertainment, but aside from the Minutemen stuff, I was left with very little to chew on. The original text is the gourmet meal and these were like fast food approximation of said meal. So although paying tribute to it and trying to stir feelings and emotions to match what you might have felt when you read the original, like trying to match the flavor, but ultimately falling short. And as a tribute to the work of Maureen Gibbons, they're all right, but we know very well that they were just a device built for the perpetuation of Watchmen and to make money. And there we go. It's not, it's not something we needed. So that's, that's my take on those books. And um, I mean, has anyone got anything else to add at all? Not for the comics, really. Like, I don't, I wasn't that interested in these to begin with. Like, I, yeah. I read the Minutemen one because I felt like it was the only one that was going to add context that I cared about. And then it ultimately yeah. didn't really. Um, I will say, like, I've skimmed through all the covers of these and there's some really good covers. I think the artwork for yeah. um, the Dr. Manhattan run is the best. I think mm. it has this cool, like, blue vibrancy and stuff that I really that's, like. That's and, Adam Hughes. So Right, okay. Uh, yeah. And then I think there's one cover that I really liked for Rorschach. I think it's issue number three, where it's like it's a a shoe bursting through like blocks of wood, but yeah. the um like the tread on the shoe looks like Rorschach's mask, yeah. and the wood breaking at the the toes looks like Rorschach's hat, which is kind of yeah. I just like that inventive use of like these different elements to make it look like Rorschach. So that was cool. So what I'll do is I'll just blast through the credits now for these, and then we can wrap up. So. Uh, for the Before Watchmen Comedian series, you've got uh, Brian Azzarello as the writer with Len Wein helping. Uh, J.G. Jones and John Higgins on art. Uh, Alex Sinclair and uh, John B. Higgins on colours. Uh, this is the John Higgins from the original Watchmen books, by the way. Uh, letterer was Clem Robbins. And um, you've got covers by like Eduardo Riso and Jim Lee. Um, for Doc Manhattan, it was... Uh, J. Michael Straczynski doing the writing, uh, John Higgins helping out with that. Adam Hughes and John Higgins for artist. Colorist is Laura Martin. Letterer was Steve Wands and Sal Cipriano. Um, Minutemen before Watchmen was Darwin Cook writer with Len Wein helping. Darwin Cook and uh, John B. Higgins art. Colorist uh, Phil Notto. Letterer, Jared K. Fetcher, and Sal Cipriano. I think the uh, John B. Higgins and the Len Wein and the Sal Cipriano being in every comic, I think that's to do with the fact that the uh, Crimson Corsair was published as a backup for each issue because the Crimson Corsair was, um, that was uh, Len Wein and John Higgins' art. Len Wein writing that. Um, you had the Ozymandias one, which was Len Wein, uh, Jay Lee, artist with uh June Chung and letterer John Workman, June Chung colorist. Um, Night Owl was J. Michael Straczynski, Joe Kubert, and Andy Kubert artists. Uh, colorist Brad Anderson, letterer Nick J. Napo Napolitano. Uh, apologies there for you uh, almost mispronouncing your name. Um, 
You've got the Silk Spectre one, which is Darwin Cook and Amanda Connor, uh, with Amanda Connor on art duties, Paul Mount's colorist, and Charlie Manuel on letters. Um, and the Moloch stuff was Michael Straczynski with Eduardo Riso, Clem Robbins lettering, Patricia Trish Mulvill colorist, and Dollar Bill, which was Lem Ween uh, writing, Steve Rude artist, colorist Glenn Whitmore, and uh, letterer Steve Rude. So, you know, like, the amount of talent they chucked at that and what came out of it in the end, you know? Um, there we go. That was the uh, before Watchmen series. And that is something that on a scale of one to 10 definitely shouldn't exist. <laughs> and it should probably be somewhere down towards the one end of the scale, I feel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that wraps up our second portion of Watchmen discussion. Uh, that has been uh, watching the Watchmen part two. Um, if you um like what you hear we have a kofi and you can head over and buy us a coffee um or donate the money that you would pay like the price of a coffee and that will help keep the lights on for the podcast and keep everything going uh, you can find everything ace comicals at www.acecomicals.com um we'll be coming back and doing a third part for this watchman series which will be based um on the recent hbo tv series um and uh again that will be featuring anthony askew as our guest uh askew where can we find you uh if you want to want to hear me cough on another podcast uh dynamitethebrain.com always about anime do a few manga ones we've done a few live action adaptation stuff we've talked about the adaptations uh if you go to twitch you can watch me play stuff at Ant askew and twitter is also Ant askew that's it. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, everything we do is at uh, com. You can find links to our Facebook, our Twitter, where we are under Ace Comicals. Um, you can find us on Instagram under Ace Comicals. You can find us to listen to us in a plethora of places. Um, like... Uh, iTunes, uh, Apple, oh, Apple Podcast, Castbox, Castro, Overcast, Pocketcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. Um, <laughs> we're we're everywhere. Uh, almost starting to sound like the poker app, that isn't it? Um, so, I mean, you can find me on Twitter under at Bato. You can get involved in the conversation. You can write to us at uh, acecomicals.gmail.com. Um, you can DM us on Twitter or whatever if you want to get in touch. Um, Ray, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me getting really excited about talking about the HBO Watchmen show um, and also on Twitter at Monke, M-O-O-N-K-E-H. And Leon, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Leon Everett. And uh, something else that's uh, really different and really cool that we do now, Ace Comicals now has T-shirts. So, yes, you can find us at um, acecomicals.threadless.com, which is our little T-shirt shop. And uh, there's currently two designs available. And uh, I think Askew's got one now, haven't you? Yours arrived you, yeah. the other day. Mm-hmm. Looks good. What do you Looks think really of it? Good, Is it good? <laughs> good quality. Um, I like my colour combination that I've chose. So yeah. I think you've, you've got some good colours, and I think the design works well with a myriad of them. So, yeah, I'm cool. happy with this. What did you go for? Ash grey or something? It's like, yeah, it's like an ash, yeah. ashy grey. Not quite grey, but not quite 
white somewhere in between i can't remember what the proper names for the colors are now but i yeah. i went with a white one for my test print and um it looks pretty good and i was actually quite impressed with the print quality it's really good print quality yeah, it looks good it has you, survived you... the washing machine so far so nice ask you are you going to model it so we can put it on our twitter page um not right this second <laughs> right now <laughs> I, I would recommend washing whenever you get a new t-shirt wash it first mm. Because it's and, a bit crisp, you know, like a bit yeah. too rough on the old skin, sensitive skin, me. I mean, yeah, the print I'll, quality is, I, I'm, I'm impressed with the print quality. Print quality is sick on the test print that I've got. Mm. And um, yeah, it's survived. It's been in the washing machine. It still looks cool. So um, it's oh, the kind of print. the washing machine and the design's gone, when I take it out, I'll be very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of print where, I mean, like you get these like really cheaply made print t-shirts, but this is the kind of print where it's actually like in the shirt. So it's not like rubber on top of the shirt. It's actually like printed into the fabric. So um, it's not likely to fade that fast. It's uh, it's. it's Are you really making promises print. here? If if it starts fading, no, I, I know I know my graphic shirts, Askew. I've got plenty of them. Yeah, I know that do. this is the kind that that kind of sticks around better and doesn't. Yeah, begin I can to totally vouch for it. It's, it's thick yeah. material as well. It's not it doesn't feel yeah. cheap and chatty. Yeah. So there we go. That has been Ace Comicals episode 87. That is Ace Comicals watching the Watchmen part two. Uh, Ace Comicals over and out.